And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report. It is Wednesday, November 15th, 2017. Program heard live 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Global Star Radio Network and BTR. Thanks for joining us. A lot of, have got a lot of things taking place, a lot of news to cover. And of course, at the, uh, at the third hour, we will have, uh, some spiritual nourishment from Pastor David Langford. Just want to thank everyone for joining us again uh, tonight. Thank you so much for your belief and your trust in us. Uh, the news media, the news headlines, what a minefield of events we are seeing. Of course, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to just say this right off the top. It's interesting that uh, we have uh, we have little coverage of the Uranium One scandal. We have a little coverage of the uh, emails that, that's still a story. That's still a crime. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin. We have little coverage of Pedagate. Well, that's going to change tonight, hour two. And we have little coverage in the mainstream media, of course. Why would they of fake news? That's going to change momentarily. So hour one, we're having Peter Barry Chowka come on. And he's definitely always a crowd, crowd pleaser. Let me tell you, his article, new article, it was 40 years ago when my suspicions about fake news were confirmed. There you have it. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link there. And by the way, do yourselves a favor. Follow Peter Barry Chowka on Twitter. His Twitter his Twitter account is um, P. Chowka. At P. Chowka, right. Uh, at P. Chowka. So follow him on Twitter. Um, I do, and it, I'm actually get uh, uh, get updates from him even when they're not on our website, uh, of course. So, that said, now, a couple of things. Um, it's, Joe, I want to ask you, did you happen to see the six-minute, what would you call it, monologue by Shepard Smith? And I want to ask no, you about I didn't. this. I did not, but I did read um, of some people on the internet, some commenters who were very dissatisfied with Fox News, saying, okay. I'm never watching okay. Fox again, and, this and, is crazy. Right. And, and this, now, now for, for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, this is why Peter Barry Chowka is so important. This is why we talk about Sean Hannity, for example, and this is, this is Exhibit A. Uh, I mean, this is a perfect example of what Peter Barry Chalk has been talking about for for the better part of a year and writing about. And what it is is this. Uranium One had been laid out explicitly using a flowchart yesterday by Sean Hannity. As a matter of fact, I've got a very similar flowchart laid out in my office on a large, um, it's a heavy stock paper. And it's it's very comprehensive, a little bit more than than Sean Hannity's, but Sean Hannity's did the trick. I don't know if you saw that last night. However, what we're talking about is a six-minute segment where Shepard Smith came in and refuted the Uranium One story. 
And the facts, though, if you check the facts, you compare the facts, his facts, to the facts presented by Peter Schweitzer, by Sean Hannity, by Sarah Carter, by John uh, uh, from uh, The Hill, John Solomon. And if you look at all of the new information, I've got to tell you, Shepard Smith is wrong. I mean, he's not, he, he's wrong, incorrect, completely. My question is, how is this possible? And of course, we're going to be talking about uh, this with Peter Chalka, but if you can just imagine, uh, the, it, it would be pretty much, uh, like one of our, well, like Joe and I having differing, uh, of me providing evidence and Joe providing evidence that's in direct opposition to what I provide or vice versa. Well, there's only one correct set of evidence or one correct uh, uh, evidence. So that's, to me, that this is Exhibit A. This is illustrative of the everything that, P- that Peter's been talking about. So we're, hopefully we're going to get have a chance to get into that today. Very interesting. Portion Nice Broadcast brought to you, of course, by Omaha Steaks. You want a great steak or perhaps seafood or any number of other gourmet foods, go to omahasteaks.com. That's omahasteaks.com. And for a family gift pack, the uh, special that, that they're running today, just for Hagman listeners, go to omahasteaks.com, type in HH in the search bar, and you'll get 75% off of the gift pack there. It's uh, under $50. It's, a, it's an incredible savings. More on that later. So all of this combined, plus, of course, the news on uh, Judge Roy Moore. I'm, I'm not liking what I'm, I'm hearing. It's another accuser. Another accuser, right. But then... That's a weird story. Uh, how, y- y- yes. Um, and I, I received it. Actually, someone had telephoned the office and said, why don't you give uh, offer to provide polygraph examinations to all of the accusers? And uh, to us, because we're, we're licensed investigators, of course, we're not polygraphers, and we don't employ polygraphers. No, that's not what it means. Polygraph technicians. We don't employ them. So, well, just real quick, um, there's a few things that, yeah. with the Roy Moore thing, then we'll bring Peter on one. Sean Hannity gave Roy Moore an ultimatum, gave him 24 yes. hours to respond to the latest allegations from yesterday or Monday or to clarify his story or he was going to pull a support from him. I think that was the, the deal. And I don't know what Hannity was thinking. I don't agree with that move at all. And I don't know who that was trying to help. It doesn't seem like that would be helpful to Roy Moore to put him in that situation. But either way, the lawyers for Roy Moore had a press conference today. And they disputed the yearbook, what was in the yearbook, the signature of Roy Moore with the DA next to it. Now, according to the attorneys, the accuser who had the press conference with Gloria Allred had a divorce proceeding in Roy Moore's courtroom in 1999 where he was the judge over this woman's divorce proceeding. If that's true, to me, that that and, and what, what, some of the other things the lawyer points out takes away a lot of the credibility from the woman. But again, you have another accuser coming forward, and they're saying that he sh- she was grabbed inappropriately by him one time in his office while her mother was there, but her mother didn't see it. It's very convenient. Well, yeah, I'm looking at this. This to me, 
without respect or without regard to the actual, um, what, what, did any of this happen? Look, I don't know. I wasn't there. And it's a he said, she said right. type of situation. And uh, on the left, it's interesting how convenient it is where, where people are coming out and say, we, and how many times have the victims been proved wrong? Look at the Duke, uh, lacrosse case. Look at some other cases. Yet that same standard is not applicable to people like Bill Clinton or as we're seeing with Joe Biden and others. So it's very interesting. So without respect to that, I just find the timing of the accusations and the quality of the accusations to be lacking. That's just, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I, I, I'm, but again, this, regardless of which side you're on, I don't see any winners here. And I, and I certainly don't want to, um, you, you cannot unring the bell that has been rung. I'll just leave it at that. Let's not uh, waste any more time. Peter Barry Chauka, one of the most talented and, uh, gifted writers I know and certainly a great intellectual as well. Uh, his latest piece is on HagmanReport.com. It was 40 years ago when my suspicions about fake news were confirmed. Check it out. Go to HagmanReport.com. There it is on the screen if you're watching this via YouTube. Peter, welcome. Nope. Can't, can't hear we you. We can't hear you, Peter. Nope. Can't. You know what? We're going to reconnect. We're, we're going to reconnect. So... Uh, how's that for sign language? Looked like he had a new piece of equipment. I don't know if that was a microphone yeah. that he had there, um, or a new setup at least. But <clears throat> that well, could add well, to the you know a lot of times. Yeah, a lot of times it's it's it, even with the preparation beforehand. A lot of times uh, the equipment malfunctions, or it's got to go through a lot of different gates. I suppose is the the wording here. Well, while we're waiting for Peter. How about this? Yeah. Did you see this story today? House Democrats introduce articles of impeachment against Trump. There were six House Democrats on Wednesday launched their latest effort to oust President Trump, including five new articles of impeachment revolving around the central theme that the president is a danger to the country. You have claims that, one, he obstructed justice by firing James Comey, one saying that, and I think we hear you, Peter, one saying that he meddled with Russia or colluded with Russia in the election, um, another saying he was mentally unfit. Another saying he violated some constitutional clause for receiving gifts. False, false, subjective. But anyway, it's yeah, going to go false. nowhere. But we see these people continuing to try. And, 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 and Joe, we'll that's, hurt the, that's 20, the in-game objective. Will this, some are concerned that this is going to hurt the Democrats' chances in the go. 2018 election. Okay, we're, we're good to go. Peter, welcome. Okay. Well, are we good? There we go. There we are. You know, I did a microphone test an hour ago, and everything was working fine. So you never know with Skype. It was it was actually uh, Tech Eric's fault. He just said uh, he just fell on the sword. So we're okay with that. Uh, so we're okay. So it's good to see you, my, my man. Good to see you. Thanks yes, for absolutely. That that was a fantastic article, by the way. On on uh, just out. It was forty years ago when my suspicions about fake news were confirmed. Fantastic. It's right here. We have it printed out, and it's required reading for all of our listeners. You know, or we ask you to please read that. And uh, of course, and it is it is an exclusive for the Hagman Report. Well, I'll tell you, you're a talented author, a talented writer, and a, a marvelous researcher, and we appreciate everything you do. Um, do you, you want to start off with that, or do you want to talk about uh, 
you, you want to go in the in, in the uh, Fox News route, or what, yes. what do you want to do? I, I had intended to start off with the 40 year ago today article, but uh, I'd, I'd rather go in a slightly different direction because, and I usually, as you know, don't often refer to myself personally in my writing, or uh, to some extent, I let my hair down when we get together, but. Uh, and I, I wondered if I should even bring this up, but I think I have to because what happened to me earlier this morning advances the story that I'm working on and have been working on for the last six months or more on the cable news wars, the media, Fox News, Sean Hannity, and uh, it really shed some light on the big picture. Uh, just after 5 a.m. this morning, Eastern Time, I was still awake, of course, and I noticed uh, a surge of activity on my Twitter account and on instinct I knew that Sean Hannity had not retweeted anything which previously would result in this kind of uh, activity on my Twitter so I went to President Donald Trump's Twitter and right at the top of his official Twitter page was a retweet of my tweet from November 4th which linked to an article about Sean Hannity uh, titled Hannity's, Sean Hannity's Big Week. So this is the second time that President Trump has retweeted me in the past three weeks. And uh, I began to note what was happening with my Twitter because in a flash, uh, one's Twitter account, when you're retweeted by the President of the United States, suddenly starts accumulating hundreds, if not thousands, of what are called notifications, messages, retweets, likes, etc. And I also gained about 150 new followers in the next six hours. But anyway, I wasn't prepared for what I was going to find by paying attention to the notifications. And I've seen some of this before because we know that the enemies of Donald Trump and Sean Hannity are out there lurking. Uh, but it, it, it really has hit a new low point. And I feel like today, in, in the wake of this, I'm coming off of at least a mild case of PTSD from really confronting what I saw on my Twitter. Uh, I'd say 90 to 95 percent of the messages and the notifications, the comments I was getting on my Twitter in response to President Trump's retweet were the most disgusting, vile attack messages that I could imagine. Absolutely depraved. And uh, not all of them, of course, were paid trolls. You can tell, I check out as many as I can, and you can tell some of them are legitimate, confused, angry, sick people out there who are attacking me. I mean, I'm down on the food chain, obviously, but they're attacking me, they're attacking President Trump, they're attacking Sean Hannity in the most disgusting, vile, and in some cases, borderline criminal ways. And uh, I don't consider myself overly sensitive, but I have to say that in the dark of night there, I was not prepared for this onslaught, and it literally made me sick. So I begin with that. But the, the reason I even mention it is because it, it shed some important light for me on what's happening with the mainstream media, the Roy Moore case, uh, the enemies of Donald Trump, and the target to take down Fox News and Sean Hannity in particular. I know that you are one of the few analysts who really understands this fully and completely. 
as we've been comparing notes and I've been hearing your broadcasts uh, in the morning, and you're right on the money with your identification of the importance of Fox News as the last mainstream media outlet of any credibility and fairness left standing. It's the last one. And although it's not perfect, and I don't even watch it much of the day, like when Shepard Smith is on, for example, uh, the prime time at Fox, as well as the morning show, Judge Jeanine Pirro and some others uh, are the best things on the mainstream media. And all you had to do was watch Sean Hannity's program last night where he was channeling um, Glenn Beck in the, the high point days of Glenn Beck in 2009 and 2010 when Glenn would stand before a blackboard and elucidate what was going on with the new administration, the then new administration of Barack Hussein Obama. And Sean did that last night. He got out from his desk and stood in front of a flat screen and illustrated for the first 20 or 22 minutes of his program uh, the crimes of the Democrats, the, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Bill Clinton, and Barack Hussein Obama and their associates. And it was a brilliant piece of original work. And, of course, this is why he is target number one now. But... Again, what I realized with my experience uh, a little more than 12 hours ago now with uh, Twitter and President Trump retweeting and all is that I think this is how it came about. I think that uh, President Trump was out of touch of the U.S. media with the exception of CNN, as he said, as he was traveling in Asia. Now, when he got back to the White House yesterday from his two-week Asia trip, I believe that he probably connected with Sean Hannity. They talk often off the record, but uh, obviously they probably didn't during the past two weeks. And my sense is that Sean probably told President Trump what's been going on with him, with Fox News, and with the media in this country. And the picture is much more serious and bleak than we could have imagined. When Sean Hannity did the interview with Judge Roy Moore, candidate for the U.S. Senate in Alabama last Friday on his radio show, which was a hard-hitting interview. It was not a puff piece. There were not softball questions. And Hannity even got credit for that from a lot of the mainstream media. There's an article at Mediaite that refers to that. Anyway, that opened up Hannity for the big lie and the attempted takedown, the attempted kill shot by Media Matters, and his other enemies out there. And in the ensuing five days, they have been able to, that is, Hannity's enemies have been able to create a false meme, fake news, claiming that Hannity uh, is sympathetic to the pedophile Judge Roy Moore and that, therefore, he's not worthy of being on the air and his advertisers have to be targeted so they will stop advertising on his shows and he will go away. And uh, I think that President Trump retweeting my article about Sean Hannity's big week shows that he's reaching out to his friend, Sean Hannity. President Trump is very loyal to his friends. He follows only about 20 people on Twitter who are not members of his immediate family, and Sean Hannity is one of them. So is Eric Bowling, by the way, who was excised from Fox News in September of this year after... Uh, allegations in the Huffington Post about him. 
So I think this indicates, this is an indication, an indication of the real seriousness of Sean Hannity's uh, standing at Fox News right now. Sean is taking the high road. He's acting confident. He's fighting back. He is positioning that uh, the advertisers are not fleeing him. But right now it's very, very difficult to get a true take on what's happening with the advertisers. And for for um, for Shep Smith yesterday, for example, to go out there for six minutes on his broadcast and basically uh, try to deflate or destroy the whole uh, position that Sean Hannity and his guests, his expert guests, by the way, have been taking for the past weeks and months about the cl- crimes of the Democrats is very telling. And I think lurking behind Fox News right now are the Murdoch boys, the son of Rupert Murdoch, the new regime that's there. And by the way, I have other indications. I've developed multiple sources at Fox News right inside there over the last six months. And indications I'm getting from them, both directly and indirectly, reading the tea leaves here, over the last four or five days is that support for Sean Hannity at Fox News is seriously lagging now. So I don't make predictions. I'm not a prognosticator, but uh, I'm very, very concerned, more concerned than I've ever been in the last four months or so that I've been in touch with Sean Hannity that uh, he may be taken down. And, and that will be an absolutely terrible uh, occurrence if that happens. And I, I can't even imagine if uh, the best last man standing at Fox News is taken down. That's going to be really bad news. You know, Peter, I, I totally I agree with your assessment, and I'll, and I'll say this. I, I know that um, uh, I'll just uh, I don't want to be too cryptic here, except to say that uh, I've heard your name from my source. So there's some overlap at Fox News, uh, the information you're getting and the people you're reaching out to or are reaching out to you and uh, had mentioned your name to me. Okay, one, one of the sources or my source at Fox News. And that tell, and given the, uh, given where they're at position wise, that's pretty telling. Now, what I'm concerned about as I, as I've said constantly is that it's Mueller's job in my, in my estimation to bring down Donald Trump. That's his, that's his job. And I do believe that it's Murdoch's, the Murdoch boys, their job to bring down, um, uh, Sean Hannity. And I think neither party or parties are going to stop until those jobs are accomplished. And I am very deeply concerned about Sean Hannity's future. And I, and, and I've heard, I heard this yesterday that support or um, the excitement, I think the word was excitement, is uh, eroding. The support is eroding for Sean Hannity, given especially after the Friday interview, which publicly people praised, even on, as you mentioned, even on the left, but internal to the effectiveness and as to the um, uh, as, as to that interview, the support for that interview. So. Uh, are we, are we see, you know, what are we, what are we looking at here? Because I, I'm very concerned about, about this and, and those people who listen to my morning pro- program know why and to, to listen to you and read you, they, they, they should know why. So what's, what do you think? I mean, do you think that this is, uh, 
I don't even know what to ask at this point. Well, you, you know, unfortunately, we don't have the time to go into the details I have, many of which I could reveal, but as to why I have a bad feeling of where this is all going, not only with Fox News, but with the big picture. Let me flip to the bigger picture for a moment to try to put this into a broader perspective. I think what we're seeing here in the United States right now is a revolution. It's a soft revolution in that the mainstream media and most of the media, with the exception of the alternative media, is really not reporting on what's going on. This was predicted by Barack Hussein Obama a few days before the 2008 election when he said, to paraphrase, we're a few days away from transforming America. We couldn't have known what he had in mind. His first year, they proceeded kind of quietly, but now we see the effects of this. For the last 10 years at least, Hussein Obama and his comrades have been laying the groundwork and they're still calling the shots through what Mueller is doing, etc. And what this is now entailing, as most revolutions, that is internal revolutions and internal wars, is a purge. This is a term I think we need to get back in touch with, the purge, because in every communist, socialist, or fascist takeover or revolution that has occurred in the past 100 years, starting 100 years ago this year with the Soviet Bolshevik Revolution, they have all entailed purges of their opponents. And of course in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, these were violent purges entailing the murder of opponents or their exile or their internment in concentration camps with millions of people severely inconvenienced or left dead. And in every other communist or fascist country, Nazi Germany, Eastern Europe, East Germany, Red China, 1949, the Maoist Revolution, and then the 1960s Cultural Revolution, Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, Vietnam after it was taken over by the communists in 1975, and in this hemisphere, Cuba and Venezuela. Every one of these socialist or communist revolutions internally has entailed purging, expunging from the society, from the culture, from the media, those who were truth-tellers, those who could call attention to the revolution that was going on. They just had to be eliminated. Obviously, part of this is just human nature. When you have an enemy, you eliminate that enemy, whether foreign or domestic. And this is what is going on here now, live and in color, but it's not being reported in the mainstream media for the most part. In fact, they've turned everything upside down 180 degrees to make innocent people crusading independent journalists like Sean Hannity the victim and the enemy. And I just want to make this brief point about Sean Hannity because I've heard you say, Joe, in the past that you soured on Hannity in the early 2000s when he was gung-ho on the Iraq war. And I felt the same way at the time. But remember, he was part of a duo then, Hannity and Combs. It was a left-wing, right-wing chat show. And I think now since 2009, January, that he's been on his own on the show Hannity, he's evolved and matured into something that maybe we couldn't have imagined back there in the early 2000s. And not only through his own efforts, but 
uh, through the guests that he has presented on his program in recent months. Uh, Sarah Carter of, of Circa News, John Solomon, originally of Circa News and now of The Hill, Greg Jarrett, uh, Jay Seculo, and uh, Peter Schweitzer, uh, and Ed Klein, many other uh, crusading independent journalists and analysts who are who have got the story of what's going on in the United States today and aren't afraid to speak out and are getting very short shrift and hardly any coverage anywhere else, including on other Fox News programs. So that's why we have to pay renewed attention to Sean Hannity if we're not already doing that, to pay very close attention while he is still with us. Precisely, Peter. And by the way, my, uh, look, I was pro-war at the time as well, and I got hoodwinked like everyone else, and of course you evolve with the truth as, as the truth comes out. And uh, I remember being on uh, national radio uh, coast-to-coast and, and, and pleading the case for war and, and had making no apologies and of course that was back you know way back when but now you understand and people understand so i and even joe um understands as well uh so so yes but but you know what you said there i i don't know of any other platform and even in the alternative or new honest media that gives uh the combination of guests for example from from peter Schweitzer to sarah carter and john solomon uh, collectively, and, and even to even from within the Fox News Department, Attorney um, Greg Jarrett, for example, a brilliant legal mind. I, I don't know any. I, there's no one else that gives the platform to, to the combination where the, where the uh, where, where the full information is. For example, last night was a beautiful example of that, and in stark contrast, of course, was the piece by Shepard Smith. So this is why, you're right, this is why this is so important. Indeed. I've been recording uh, all of Sean Hannity's Fox News programs uh, in recent months, and they're also available on YouTube. If you search Hannity and a date and YouTube... You will come up with his entire Fox News shows on YouTube uploaded by individuals. And so far, Fox News is not clamping down on, down on those. And by the way, one indication I have of the flagging support at Fox News for Sean Hannity is uh, there, there's a website for his show at foxnews.com, and it has transcripts of his Fox News programs, complete transcripts, and significant video highlight clips of his monologues and his guests. Morning, his program from last Friday, the seminal show where he replayed most of his earlier radio interview with Judge Moore, has not been put online, nor has the transcript, nor has his monologue, nor have any significant clips from that show other than one with Sebastian Gorka, which was on a different subject. And... Um, I've asked Sean about that, and he has not answered my query on that, uh, which I think is food for thought and grounds for further research right there. But we are in dire times there. But, uh, you know, what we're seeing with the mainstream media now and its unbelievable takeover by the shadow government and the deep state, the likes of which we have never seen before. I mean, this absolutely 
chills the blood to see what the mainstream media is doing. Just a brief example, one of the uh, people who posted a comment at my Twitter, you know, an adversarial comment, linked to an article at HuffPo written uh, several days ago, supposedly confirming for this commenter that, oh, Sean Hannity is a supporter of a pedophile and supporter and endorser of Judge Moore, despite what has come out. So I went and read that article, and it was, of course, lies from beginning to end, total, unadulterated lies. And, of course, the Huff Post, Huffington Post, is one of the biggest news sites on the Internet. I think it's in the top 100 in the United States. So this is the kind of uh, big lie that's out there everywhere, partially, largely propelled by media matters, but it's really gone seriously viral now. And it's what took down, it's this kind of thing, focusing on the advertisers of these shows that took down Bill O'Reilly, uh, that probably took down Eric Bowling, and, the, uh, and took down... Uh, Bill Shine, who was uh, the head of Fox News and was Hannity's original producer and was Hannity's big supporter at Fox News. He was fired in uh, early May of this year based on uh, unproven allegations. And uh, now Hannity is in the crosshairs, and it seems like Shep Smith's uh, reputation is rising there, and, and Hannity is losing support. But this, you know, again, to put this in a slightly broader context of, of the media... The media is the last element in the complete takeover of the entire culture, which again is a methodology used by communists, fascists, and statists for the past 100 years. They, they take over the culture because this is how you take over and influence the politics. Most people's heads are not into politics, they're into the culture, the popular culture. So that's where the left starts, and they started in earnest in the 1960s, and actually before that in the 1940s, but we don't have time to get into my analysis of that now. But in the last 50 years... That, that's least, a very good point, Peter. I just wanted to toss it out there. What you just said about the culture, extremely important for people to really understand. Go ahead, sir. They, they, it, it, it started at the 1960s, virtually 50, 52, 53 years ago, as we sit here right now. They targeted the culture, television, primetime television, Hollywood films, popular music, rock and roll, which then became rap, which then became whatever it is now, you know, it's unlistenable, Dri driving out classical music, of course, and, and any vestige of high Western culture there. They took over uh, the performing arts, plays, Broadway plays. Look at the junk that's on Broadway now. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. They took over the educational system. Academia is now completely controlled by the communist left. Right down into public education, right down to preschool. They took over the legal system. There's I was listening to Jan Markell's program uh, last weekend where, where she, Understanding the Times, where she was uh, mentioning how our, our legal system, of course, has been completely upended and corrupted. Uh, they, they've taken over, of course, the political realm. We now have uh, apparently a majority of millennials saying, according to a recent public opinion sampling that they would prefer to actually limit a communist or socialist system. 
They've expunged the history. They're now taking down the statues. And the last on the list here is the, the mainstream media. In the past uh, eight years, certainly, but really in the past year or two since the rise of Donald Trump, we have seen the mainstream media go into a direction that the only parallels you can reach for are a previous completely controlled fascist regime like Nazi Germany, for example. Of course, it's different times, different situations, and I'm not equating the United States today with Nazi Germany. But a lot of the same techniques have been used in purging those who have a different point of view until now they have got their sights that is the enemies of freedom the enemies of the constitution the enemies of traditional America and of Donald Trump and of us are now targeting our representative in the mainstream media the last one left standing Sean Hannity on Fox News and on his daily radio show he reaches an audience of between 16 and 20 million people Americans per week with his radio show which has over 10 million Listeners, probably about 13 million, and his uh, evening television show on Fox News, which has between three and five million listeners or viewers on any given night. So uh, he's number one, really. He is the number one traditional conservative voice in the American media right now. And if he can be taken down, uh, they they are on firmer ground for coming after the rest of us who are uh, much further down on the food chain and much easier to pick off. Peter, I read a story for us. Go ahead. I read a story today just to, to uh, add support to your argument, not that it needs support. We see with our own eyes what the media does. But, you know, this is an interesting article, even though it might um, not be important to some, but it kind of gives us an idea of where the media's head is at. And that was a New York Times reporter uh, went on to say that the videos of Joe Biden circulating on Twitter, uh, him being called creepy Joe Biden and the videos of him, uh, touching women on, on, uh, YouTube and Twitter are fake news, not because they are true, but because they, uh, she says that, um, basically because it goes against what, what they believe as, you know, the liberal reporters on the New York Times, but they're advocating for Twitter because they don't agree with it. Uh, trying to, to cite it as fake news. And unfortunately, we live in a world where, you know, much of the top people in, in the industries of business and politics and the media have the same mindset. Uh, the, the people who run the social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, they have the same mindset. And it is of a, a, a deceived liberal, uh, view. And anything that is conservative, anything that is Christian, anything that is wholesome is viewed as basically enemy content and is subject to be censored. And unfortunately, that's the world that we live in today. A world of total corruption and the big lie. Mm-hmm. You know, and speaking of social media, there was a story that came out less than a week ago. Um, I believe that uh, Axios did an interview with Sean Parker, who is a billionaire co-founder of Facebook. And he finally... Uh, came out and gave a, an interview critical of Facebook and social media. And uh, he said that the goal of Facebook is how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And uh, 
that that Facebook's purpose and all of social media really is to addict us to its uh, methodology and to exploit human weakness. Of course, that's a good subject for a program or a major article on its own, and I suggest people Google that if they want to check that out because it's really interesting. Sean Parker is the man's name. You know, we it it was said in the past that... um, the TV, television, was the plug-in drug. And for the past uh, really hundred years, we've been dealing with an electronic media, the mediated reality. We no longer, like in the whole history of humanity, engage other people and situations in our lives directly. We engage so much of what we know about the world and politics and culture through the media, a mediated reality. Of course, this really took off in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s with the proliferation of television. So TV, it was said, is the plug-in drug addicting us to television. Well, now we have maybe the wireless drug, the Wi-Fi drug, which is the so-called smartphone and uh, the Internet, the Internet of Things, the Internet of Everything, propelled by social media, which is the vehicle for fake news, for dumbing down the last vestige of intelligence of the American people, uh, especially dangerous now that a majority, a vast majority of Americans are accessing the Internet through their smartphones and computers, laptops, desktops are becoming sadly obsolete. So there's many things to be concerned about. And uh, actually, before we get to the end of this, because the end always comes very, very quickly, uh, I just wanted to make this comment. Three things that I would hope that your audience would help all of us out with today. Number one is attention. Please give us your attention. And for me, I would appreciate, as you said earlier, Doug, attention to my Twitter Uh, I'm a newbie as far as Twitter, but I see some value in it. And you have to build up not only your followers, but people who are actually paying attention. And I use my Twitter not to retweet, but to basically link to my articles and my broadcasts. So it's not, uh, it's not, I'm, I'm not tweeting 30, 40, or 50 times a day, maybe once every two days or so. And that's, uh, twitter.com slash pchowka. Everybody as well should pay attention to what we're all doing, what you're doing on Twitter and what most of your guests, the Hagman family, are doing on Twitter and on the web. And that also occasions retweets. If you follow us, you have to retweet and like what we are doing, assuming you like it. And I know for myself, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm not making a dime on anything that I am doing right now, and I have no plans to. What I'm doing this for is to try to bring the truth to our listeners, viewers, and readers. And number three on my list is prayers. From what I've seen last night, from the attacks on me on Twitter, it's really, really getting dangerous. I feel like I need to hire security now. I mean, that's no joke. I know, Doug, you talked about this. You've alluded with a certain uh, vagueness to things that you are subjected to, you guys are subjected to uh, on the Internet and otherwise, and I, I've really gotten a taste of it now on my end, thanks to President Trump's tweet, retweet of me this morning. So 
please, people in the audience watching, listening, give us your prayers, include us in your prayers, or or continue to include us in your prayers, because that is the number one most important thing, obviously, to help to get us through this spiritual battle that we're engaged in so that hopefully we will see victory. And pray for, pray for Sean Hannity Absolutely. as well. Pray, pray for anyone who you see who is stepping out there and trying to speak truth to power at this very late stage in our evolution of the experiment and constitutional government of the United States, which is hanging by a thread. Boy, I don't think I could have said it any better. And Peter, you're absolutely correct when you, the violent vicious attacks that you, that you received. You know, I, I have seen it on, uh, and I, uh, I didn't think there was much that could surprise me, but the actual hatred, the visceral hatred that exists out there, uh, once you uncover things and, and, you know, when you write about things that you've written about, it's, just an amazing thing to watch. It's frightening, and uh, yeah, it makes you want to build a fence around your your home and make sure your family is protected. And it, it's it's beyond anything people. I think you can. It's beyond. It's beyond what people really can comprehend unless they're sitting in your seat. Um. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's a it's. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. But well, you know, my my, my friends of mine have said, why do you even look at it, Sean Hannity? Yeah told me he never looks at any of his Twitter notifications, comments, direct messages, and that's true of most of the people in the public eye who might have millions of followers. It's just physically impossible. Sure. But uh, I have always followed and tried to read all of the comments to my articles at American Thinker, for example. There have been over a thousand comments in the last two days to my recent articles there. And, uh, of course, they're nothing like what comes up on Twitter here in, in the last uh, 12. I feel a responsibility when, you know, I have to see what's out there and I have to try to understand it and maybe steel myself against it. But I was really unprepared for the onslaught this morning. Uh, before we run out of time, could I just maybe comment briefly on the article? You've got the that floor. I did exclusively for the Hagman Report, which is um, up there right now. And that is about, uh, I originally titled it something like, uh, it was 40 years ago today that I discovered fake news. And then I modified that by saying, well, it really was earlier than that because I've been into this for longer than 40 years. That is as a reporter and a journalist. But I'm, I'm very attuned to dates and timelines, both in my own life and in the history of our times. And, in this month, November 2017, I've been thinking a lot about 40 years ago this month, that is November 1977, and what I was doing then. And it, it was a seminal period in my life. I was beginning work on my third major article on the politics of cancer, which was a series of articles that I was writing and very early on, as I describe in the article at the Hagman Report right now, very early on in my reporting, I discovered that uh, the war on cancer, as it was being called, which was being sold to us as a bipartisan war in the Congress, the medical establishment, big pharma, 
celebrities. You know, these were the days before the pink ribbons and the 5K races for finding the cure. You know, that's the latest incarnation of it. But 40 years ago, it was much more primitive and simple, and it entailed pouring billions of dollars into the federal government, National Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institute, to try to find a cure for cancer in time for the nation's bicentennial in 1976. Of course, not only did that not happen, but it still hasn't happened 45 years now after the cancer war was officially declared, actually 46 years, on December 23, 1971. But in November 1977, I was really getting down with that story in Washington, D.C., interviewing people at the National Cancer Institute, and my key source, the late Dr. Dean Burke, who was one of the greatest men in the history of modern American science and medicine. And when I told him that I was interested in the area of diet and cancer, 1977, which, by the way, was totally uh, verboten then. If, if you said there was any link between diet, nutrition, and cancer, you were called a quack or a criminal. This was a, a multi-decade assault on the common sense realization that nutrition has everything to do with our health, including cancer, cause, and treatment. But anyway, when I met Dr. Burke uh, for the first time, I mentioned my interest in dying in cancer, and he said, let's get out to my basement library, and I'll show you something. And he took out some volumes of studies, scientific studies in the literature, books, scientific papers, conference uh, uh, proceedings, from the early 1900s about, guess what, diet, nutrition, and cancer. The field of diet, nutrition, and cancer was a vigorous area of mainstream scientific inquiry in the early decades of the 20th century. And the scientists then, in a early primitive way, were finding out that, in effect, there is the such a thing as an anti-cancer diet, and the diet also has a role to play in the treatment of cancer. Well, what happened? I asked Dr. Burke, what happened? This is 1977, and they're still saying that this is all quackery. He said, well, along came chemotherapy during World War II. It came out of uh, paying attention, scientists paying attention to poison mustard, ga- mustard gas and realizing that that could have a role in the treatment of leukemia. Too long to go into scientifically now, but that's what happened. And overnight, dying cancer was out. And uh, toxic chemotherapy drugs were in, and for the next 30, 40 years, that's what got all the research money. That's what got the PR push. Finally, in 1977, that was changing because uh, people were paying attention to diet and cancer again, both at the grassroots level and on the early mainstream scientific level. And the rest is history, and I, I go into it in my article at the Hagman Report. I take 2,100 words to do it. And in so doing, by the way, I reference exactly what I was doing 40 years ago. I have scans of uh, articles of mine, which were, in fact, this article on the National Cancer Institute that I was writing, which is republished in a United States Senate committee hearing which was grilling the head of the National Cancer Institute the next year, June 12th and 13th, 1978, those hearings. And Senator George McGovern submitted my article on the National Cancer Institute as evidence in this 
proceeding, this congressional U.S. Senate hearing, and it wound up published in the official hearing transcript. Now, I'm not blowing my own horn here. I'm just saying this is the history. This is my legacy of reporting for these jerks who are attacking me left and right all over the Internet for not having any credibility, for not having any reason to stand and say that I'm a bona fide journalist. Well, I wish I could say what I think of these people, but, you know, read the article if you have any questions. Of course, they won't bother. They won't bother read the article. They don't care about the truth. They're a bunch of deviant, sick, evil, demonic liars. And that goes all the way to the top of the mainstream media. You mentioned the New York Times. Let me mention this. I've never mentioned this. Here's an exclusive. I discovered this in 2009 when I was trying to understand how is it that everybody's falling over Barack Hussein Obama, right? I discovered a column in the New York Times written by one of their leading female writers who write, who wrote a, an opinion column, I believe it was January or February, of 2009, which I've never seen referenced anywhere, and I've never even referenced it. And she admitted that when she talked with her girlfriends, her women friends, all of them, almost without exception, admitted to her that they were dreaming about having sex with President Barack Hussein Obama. And this New York Times female writer wrote a column, an op-ed about this, which I believe was just published at the Times uh, website and not in the paper, which is why it probably didn't get that much attention. And I'm not sure it's still online, but and and reference it because this helps to explain what's going on here. When you talk about the popular culture taking over the mind of America, women and men, here is a gold-plated example of it, and that is what is running the show in the mainstream media all the way up to t- to the top. And again, to return back to Fox News and Sean Hannity, without Fox News, the people on there, many of them, and Sean Hannity, the mainstream media is less than zero. Amen, brother. And I feel your your uh, passion because, yeah, that's what passes for journalism and, of course, the attacks on you when, in fact, uh, you need, I, I have to tell, I mean, you need no validation of course in the article that you wrote it was four years ago when my suspicions about fake news were confirmed there it is right there and so i feel your frustration i want to say welcome to the party uh welcome to the club uh i think you're in good company uh but but you know everything you said is right on the money and you are you were so far ahead of your time back in in 1977 and even before then And, and i just want to say thank you uh because not enough people say thanks nowadays, but we do. And I want to say thank you for all you do and all you continue to do. And, and folks, he's right. No one, we don't, we can't, we don't pay him a dime. Um, Peter Barry Chalka, I, I, how long did it take you to work, to, to write this article? I, days. I mean, you poured over every word and it was a long time. It, it, well, I started it about uh, two weeks ago as the anniversary, November 3rd. 1977 was approaching and um, you know I write multiple drafts and every time I reread the article I change it so I guess if I added up the changes and the drafts it would be in the hundreds by the time mm. it's it finally goes to publication and then the benefit of my being able to post 
my work at thehagmanreport.com is that I can continue to change, tweak, modify, correct, if necessary, and add things because I have the ability to do that on my own. So that that is a very rare benefit, which I sincerely appreciate. And uh, I, I'm right now very proud of that venue, the Hagman Report, and I'm looking forward to hopefully a long association with you guys because it's really number one in my book right now. If you have us. If you if you'll still have us, and as yeah. we as we expand our followers, I mean, I you know the last tweet I got reached was from President Trump with an article at the Hat Report, so we're getting noticed. Amen to that. Keep Joe. up the great work, and thank you so much for for writing for Hagman Report. It's always fun and educational when we read your articles, and you have a, a great following, Peter. Keep up the good work, and thank you. May God bless thank you, Thank you sir. again, guys. Uh, be well, and God bless. Thank you. God bless you, too. We'll be back after this commercial break. You're listening to this Wednesday edition of the Hagman Report. Stay tuned. edition of the Hagman Report. If you did not catch our one, Peter Barry Chalka was on, and of course, uh, just to recap that very briefly, you know, when President Trump retweets an article from Peter Barry Chalka, uh, written or featured on the Hagman Report, it, it is big news, I, I, I have to say, I, and uh, kudos to, to Mr. Chalka and his uh, tenacious research and reporting. A lot of good stuff there. Uh, and, and we thank him. We thank him. You're listening to this program. Here's, here's what I, I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to follow him on Twitter because um, it, the, the, the more the more followers he gets, the better coverage we have. And, of course, that's the key. So do that. Now, a quick announcement yeah. here. Okay. Don't forget, uh, we had Paul McGuire on last week. He that's has right. his prayer meeting tomorrow, and I'm going to give out the information. It is at 7 p.m. at the Garland Hotel. I'm sorry, this Friday, not Thursday, Friday. 7 right. p.m. the Garland Hotel this Friday. It's at 4222 Vineland Ave, North Hollywood, California. And this is, again, for the Paradise Mountain Church Paul McGuire prayer meeting that is going to be held on Friday at 7 p.m. Go to paulmcguire.us for more information on that. It's free to register. You have to register on his website, so make sure you do that if you're going to attend. And, and tell him when you're there. Tell him that you heard that on the Hagman Report, if if in fact you did, because uh, it's it's. Hey, I'll tell you what. If I if I lived within a if I lived within three four hours drive five hours drive, I would attend because they're that good. And uh, I, I I don't know. Just just paulmcguire.us. Is there registration involved? Did yes, you, you have to go on palmerware.us and register. All right. And his new book, Conquering the Matrix, is fabulous as well. Speaking of fabulous, when's the last time you had a great steak? When's the last time you had a steak that it was aged for 21 days? Hmm? Oh, my goodness. Can you just taste the succulent flavor 
of a great steak. No more grocery store steaks. OmahaSteaks.com. OmahaSteaks.com. They have got a fantastic family gift pack right now. As a matter of fact, it makes the perfect business gift. We have given them out to special people that uh, uh, we have business relationships with, and they have just raved about the quality of the items. And in fact, when we got our package, I, I couldn't believe, number one, how how the, you, everything just exudes quality. The, from the way it's packed to the way the items are boxed and labeled to the way it's delivered, it's a pleasant experience. And I'll tell you something else. If my neighbor likes it, you can guarantee it's a good deal. So if you're struggling to find the perfect gift for someone who has it all, go no further. Go to omahasteaks.com and make sure you put in the search bar HH. Now, let me tell you about Omaha Steaks and how for only $49.99 you can get my family gift back when you go to omahasteaks.com and enter our code HH in the search bar. It's 75% off. And you know, don't stop there because Omaha Steaks, they have over 500 gourmet gift ideas. They've got the most flavorful tender aged beef. Plus, they've got seafood, uh, pork, poultry, veal, lamb, veggies, desserts, appetizers, pasta, soups, everything. It's an, it's an amazing shopping experience. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving to our listeners an exclusive savings. And again, just to our listeners, listen to everything that you will get for less than $50. Two filet mignons. Oh, they are so delicious. Two top sirloins. Four chicken breasts. Some of the best chicken I've ever tasted. Two boneless pork chops. Four burgers, which are fabulous. They're, they're just, man, I'll tell you, I'm getting hungry right now. Four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, the Omaha Steaks seasoning packet, and four kielbasa sausages. Plus, plus, you'll get four additional kielbasa sausages free. All you need to do is go to omahasteaks.com, enter HH in the search bar to get the 75% savings. It's just that simple, and it's the gift guaranteed to be a hit. That's omahasteaks.com. HH in the search bar, 75% off. All of that for under $50. You can't beat it. Hey, with the holidays coming up, you can do your shopping right there. And, and it's, it's a gift of, it's a gift of love as far as I'm concerned. And, and if you don't know who to give it to, hey, I'll give you my address. There you go. Yeah. So anyway. We have with us Matthew Valentinus. He's an entertainment lawyer, a film producer, and is the executive producer of a Hollywood expose film, An Open Secret. Man. This is a, a very interesting uh, film. It, it details the sexual exploitation of minors in Hollywood. Uh, Matthew, welcome to the Hagman Report. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. <laughs> Loud and clear, as a matter of fact. Um, All right, great. Now, you're an entertainment lawyer, a literary manager, film producer. You, obviously, I'm telling you this, right? I'm telling the audience this, but you've held various uh, creative and business administrative positions in the entertainment industry. So you know the, in, by the way, on both coasts, so you know the entertainment industry pretty well. And, um, 
uh, of course, you created this film. And you were on InfoWars not too long ago. I think it was, what, a week ago? A week and a half ago? That was my partner, Gabe Hoffman. Oh, I'm yes. sorry. Okay. The, the, the open secret film was featured on InfoWars nonetheless. Uh, so you, you, tell us about this project. Tell us about an open secret. We're going to give you the floor because this is one of the most, I don't know if it's, I don't even know how to describe it except to say it's important information that you've got. It's got to get out to the, to the people. The people have got to understand what, what is going on in Hollywood. I think they've gotten a taste of it. You've been proven not that you needed val- uh, validation. But certainly, an open secret has been validated. Uh, your research, your investigation, and your final work product. So, so just start wherever you you want, and let's walk through. Yeah, let's this. let's start here. Uh, what made you get into the, to this project? Yeah. Well, what made me get into it is uh, Gabe Hoffman and I. Well, we went to NYU together, and you know we've stayed in touch ever since. And one day we were just talking about doing a documentary on boxing because, you know, I'm in the film industry and, and, and Gabe's done very well on Wall Street so he was thinking about investing in a film and then he came back and he said you know what I'd rather try and do something good and I'd like to do something that deals with the sexual abuse of women or children so that was around 2011 we started talking about it and then in 2012 I came up with the idea of really focusing it on Hollywood uh for several reasons, because A, I'd lived out there and I'd heard a lot of rumors, and B, we knew we could shoot most of it there, and C, Hollywood is very international, uh, so it would have some commercial appeal. We wanted to reach a market beyond just the documentary film market, uh, and, and, and we could really shoot and D, which never happened and maybe it's hopefully starting to happen now, is we thought that the Hollywood community would get behind this once we really exposed what was going on. Um, so with all of that together, our final goal was to, uh, you know, really make a critically acclaimed, very well-documented, factual film exposing what's going on in the industry. Uh, we, you know, that would actually be profitable enough that 100% of all profits from this film, if if we ever make any, are going to a foundation that we were creating. So our whole goal was really to make this film, to raise awareness, and then to use the film to set up a foundation that would be there to help victims of sexual abuse in Hollywood, which is, as we've seen the last couple weeks, is a lot of people. So that's really where the idea started, and, and what got it going was... Uh, Corey Feldman talking again. I had always heard the rumors that Corey had, had had mentioned, but when he started coming out again in 2011 and 2012 about the pedophilia in in Hollywood, we reached out to him because one of his main fears was always that he needed protection. And one thing that we had was a lot of money, the best lawyers, the best insurance, and we had no fear. Um, so. Once we reached out to Corey, uh, his manager, he seemed interested. And then once he was interested, Gabe and I decided we needed to find the right production company, which is why we went out and uh, I found Amy Berg and Disarming Films, because Amy had done a film on the Catholic Church scandal that came out in 2006 called Deliver Us From Evil, for which she was Oscar-nominated. 
and she kind of helped bring that issue to the forefront, very similar issue. So I figured she'd be great for this because she knows how to do investigative reporting, she knows how to talk to pedophiles, and she knows how to make a great documentary, and she's already established in the industry. Everybody knows her. So we had the money, we had the Oscar-nominated director, we had the lawyers, and then we went out and we did the research. We hired private investigators. We brought on investigative reporters. Uh, and we really did about six months of research before we even decided to move forward with the film. And once the research came back with just a mountain of evidence that there was enough there, we proceeded to start shooting the film, you know, late 2012, early 2013. That's a that's a fascinating story, Matthew. I want to ask you this. Um, so you said from all the research you compiled, it was obviously overwhelming. You had plenty of information to do this story. Um, in Hollywood, there's this this culture that obviously is part of of Hollywood that uh, the sexual exploitation has been going on for a long time, uh, well before even even this generation and the exposure that we've seen recently. Um, what is it about Hollywood where I can understand where you have abusers protecting other abusers, but why is the whole atmosphere of seeming to protect these allegations, these exploitations, and the people who commit them? Well, that was another reason why we chose Hollywood, just because it, it's 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 more exaggerated, right? I think that the the level the, the people that go there are more susceptible to this and the pedophiles that flock there are are hungrier and even more evil than your average pedophile um so really we chose hollywood by no means to bring hollywood down i love hollywood it's just that hollywood is a greater example on a larger scale of how this happens everywhere i mean let's be clear this happens everywhere in every town from hollywood all the way down to alabama so it's it's not that it doesn't happen everywhere else, but it, in Hollywood, I think it just attracts more people to it from both sides of it in terms of it attracts more pedophiles, and then it also attracts people who are more susceptible to the pedophiles because of the industry. And if you look at the entertainment industry, it's really one of the few industries where children are actually allowed to work with adults. I mean, you're even allowed to have a baby on the set. Hmm. So... I mean, how I mean, how frequently do we have that really in any other industry? Uh, so, you, you know, I, I, never, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I never really gave that a thought. I never exactly. thought of that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, and 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 the, what we found is that this is that this is really highly organized. This isn't a case of a couple random pedophiles, uh, you know, operating on their own. This is systemic. And yes, it, I mean, obviously this has been going on. I mean, there was always rumors about Bob Hope and then, you know, going back to Charlie Chaplin. So it's not like this is a new thing in, in Hollywood, but I actually think it's worse because Hollywood's gotten bigger. There's more people in it. It's become more international. The entertainment industry is more around the world. And the people that are doing this, I think, are more powerful, and it's become more tolerated. Uh, and and it's it's so big and so wide that 
most male actors will tell you. I mean, I've had some male actors say that they think it's up to 100% of them. It's even worse with males, I believe. I'm not trying to discredit what's going on with women, but I think, you know, with women, maybe it's 75 or 85%. With men, it might be 90 or 100%. It's, it's that bad. Those numbers are, are, <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I, yeah, I'm tongue-tied with those numbers. All right. Well, Matthew, let me let me ask you this. Let me uh, try to. You might have some some better insight on why the Harvey Weinstein. This is kind of we we had uh, during the election cycle last year. You know the 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 pizza pedo gate stuff that came out, and then we saw um, you know Harvey Weinstein stuff come out this year where. Out of nowhere, a man who has been obviously having this this behavior for decades that has been well documented, and all of a sudden uh, we hear stories that were written years ago that never came out, but now we had this um, a few people come out. We had the the media jump on board and really get behind exposing Harvey Weinstein. Uh, what changed? I guess. What, why uh, did they decide to come I, out? If I can just jump in here, too, Joe, you, you make a good point. I have a feeling that your efforts were contributed to that. Or am I wrong? I would I would like to think so. Um, we were clearly threatened and intimidated. I mean, our film debuted in 2014. The Bat, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, tried to censor our film because we outed one of their young performer committee members who was a long-time manager in the industry for 30 or 40 years. We basically had him confess to trying to be inappropriate with one of his child actors in the film. And we did that interview at Screen Actors Guild headquarters with their own PR people. And then David White, who's the executive director of the Screen Actors Guild, sent us threatening letters and told us we had to cut out, you know, any any reference to the Screen Actors Guild and any reference that uh, you know to that they were that they were involved in this. Now I'm not saying that the Screen Actors Guild was purposely trying to cover up a pedophile. I'm just trying to say instead of them trying to help us and alert the industry to this problem, they were more concerned about protecting themselves. And and that's sort of what we've seen this this entire time in the industry. And if you saw Good Morning America today, you saw Terry Crews. A large man, a former football player, afraid of coming out about what happened to him because the head agent at William Morris Endeavor, the top one or two agencies in, in the country, allegedly walked up to Terry and grabbed his genitals and, and was sticking his tongue out at him and making licking gestures in public. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is... That is not normal behavior. That's how powerful these people think they are. That's what they can do. And that's why people, if Terry is afraid, imagine how a 12-year-old kid feels or a young actress who's just coming up. So that's what we're talking about. And there's and there's so many victims that we had been sitting on this for about two years because no distributor really wanted to step up to the plate and put this out. And we knew eventually it had to come out. And, and I was at the, uh, independent television festival up in, up in Vermont when the Harvey Weinstein news broke. 
And we knew something like that was going to happen. Um, and when it finally did, I called up Gabe and I said, hey, we have to throw this up on Vimeo for free because women are finally starting to come out and we've got to, you know, we've got to support them. And, and we've got to get this tidal wave going. And, and, and once survivors start speaking, it's not going to stop because we know it's even, it's, this isn't going to stop for months. This is going to go on for months and months. And it's, it's going to get a lot worse, I think, before it gets any better. No, I have to agree with you, especially when we're looking at uh, what you're talking about, the whole culture that is around Hollywood and the, the amount of, uh, both male and female, uh, people who have been abused or have, been the abusers is so high. Uh, I don't think we have seen, uh, we have really scratched the surface yet. And, uh, you, in your film, you name names. Do you want to get into that on the air? On, on to some of the things that your investigations have broke? And, oh, absolutely. Okay. Any, anything, anything in our film I'm happy to talk about because it's, it's all factually been cleared and it's 100%, you know, it's all true. So. Well, what was the, if if we can ask you this, um, to the extent you want to, uh, uh, however you want to do this, what was the most egregious or perhaps the most surprising uh, name, individual, person, or circumstance that your film addresses, for example, that you could you could tell us about? Surprising to you, perhaps? Well, I think for your listeners. For me, it was I, none of it was really surprising to me, to be quite honest. Um, but to the average person, I, I guess person who we were most surprised by was was Brian Singer. He's the you know director and producer of the X Men series. He's produced two or three of them. He's currently producing a film uh, called Bohemian Rhapsody in London right now. Now, he's never been convicted of anything, and, and I'm not saying he's a pedophile. I'm just saying he's very good friends with at least two convicted pedophiles that we know about. And he's also friends with a guy named Gary Goddard, who on Friday, Anthony Edwards, uh, who's famous from Top Gun and ER, uh, and is on a Law and Order Menendez Brothers show right now. You know, a very well-known actor came out and said Gary Goddard molested him, which Gary Goddard has denied. But in our film, one of our survivors had also said that Gary Goddard had molested him. So, you know, Anthony Edwards, and what Anthony Edwards said was him seeing our film and reading about those cases three or four years ago triggered him. And this happened to him when he was 12, and he's 52 now. So 40 years later, he's coming out with his experiences based on our film. And I think, you know, a lot of other people know about this film and have seen it. Uh, we're up to six or seven million views online, and people are talking about it, and everyone in the industry is aware about it. I have, you know... All my friends at work at different studios are texting me and calling me all the time, asking me what the next name to drop is. Everyone's worried about certain films that are in production uh, going down. You're seeing shows being canceled. You're seeing whole, whole whole staffs of writers coming out against executive producers because of sexual harassment. I mean, you just saw Louis C.K.'s career just go down the toilet, and he was considered the greatest comic in the industry with several shows on the air. Uh, you just saw Kevin Spacey, two-time Oscar winner, career likely over. He is very good friends with Brian Singer. 
right? Brian Singer put him in Usual Suspects and put him in in uh, Superman. And in our film, we have Brian. You know, I, I'd like your listeners to watch the film on Vimeo and watch. If they only want to watch three minutes, watch the 48 minute to the 50 50 and a half minute. And in that, Brian Singer is doing the DVD commentary for the first X-Men. And he's doing it with Brian Peck, his friend, who he gave a small role in that film as a hot dog vendor. And they're talking about the scene. And in the scene, is they also gave a small cameo to Stan Lee, the creator of X-Men. And then they also, in the back of the scene, they gave a cameo to Gary Goddard, another good friend of Brian Singer. So here... On the DVD of one of the most profitable franchises for Fox Studios, you have at least one convicted sex offender in the DVD commentary talking about it. You have another one who's accused of it in Gary Goddard. And then there's been a lot of allegations about Brian Singer. But yet he's still directing a great movie in London as we speak for Fox Studios and nothing's being done about it if he's ever had settlements with anybody. Because you'll notice with a lot of these women, they had settlements. You'll notice with Harvey Weinstein, his company was built around settlements, um, even, I believe, even into their corporate structure. I, I think they, they had basically assigned money to be paid out without firing him for settlements. They had basically said, okay, we suspected Harvey's going to, sexually assault so many people, so we're going to set aside this much money for a settlement. Now, I haven't exactly seen those documents, but that's that's reported. So what I'm telling you is that the industry cares more about money than it does about any, than any human being. And where I think that this is going to change is I think they're going to start losing so much money, and, and they're going to be sued so badly and that people are going to stop being so so afraid to come forward with their stories that the corporations are going to have to change things. I mean, you just saw, you know, head of Amazon Films, Roy Price, lose his job, right? So so Amazon acted quickly. I'm sure Netflix is sitting there wondering, what are we going to do? We just had to cancel House of Cards. We just had to cancel Louis C.K. that we were going to do a good comedy show for. I've been trying to get Netflix to put this film up. I can't even get them to call me back, you know? And this is, I mean, this is a drop in the bucket for Netflix. They're spending $6 billion a year on development. They could buy this for, you know, a couple million dollars, and all the profits go to charity and help victims of sexual abuse in the industry and raise awareness. And everyone that is wants to see it is telling us, Matt, get this up on Netflix, get this up on Amazon. And I'm like, we, <laughs> we would love to if they could call us back, but they yeah. don't. It's amazing how um, these these um, companies will not. I mean, it, it seems like they're all in bed together, from the executives uh, to the producers, literally to the the publishing houses to the production companies, and it is you know one big um, you know I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of thing, and they've been able to keep it hush hush for so long. And we're uh, about a minute away from the break, Matthew, but I wanted to to get into this a little bit. Something you mentioned about the settlements. Do you think that this is standard operating procedure for 
Um, you know, the, these entertainment companies where they have, as you said, the money set aside for settlements like this, that it wasn't just uh, Harvey Weinstein, but across the board. And how much of this, of these settlements do you think are keeping people from talking? I think a lot of them. I think, and, and, and we're, we're talking settlements that can be in the three to five million range, some even higher, right? Okay. So, and, and what I think is going to have to happen is, that law enforcement is going to have to look into these settlements because I believe that you really can't have a settlement if it if it involves illegal activity and I and I think that a lot of these people are afraid of coming forward because a they spent the money or they don't want to have to give it back. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, more our, on the other side. Our uh, guest is Matthew Valentinas. He is a entertainment lawyer, film producer, and the executive producer of a film you can watch for free, An Open Secret. We'll have more on that on the other side. Stay tuned. We're right up against the break. edition of the Hagman Report. Our guest is Matthew Valentinas. He's an executive producer of a Hollywood expose film titled An Open Secret, and he is with us until the end of the hour. Matthew, before the break, we were talking about how illegal activity is not covered in these settlements and that much of Hollywood operates you know, uh, with these non-disclosure agreements, with these types of settlements that swear you to secrecy. Um, in your film, what do you find that uh, have you come across anybody who have, has agreed to these uh, terms of silence and then come back out on the other side to expose who their attackers were? That's that's a problem. Most of the people that have signed these uh, haven't haven't actually come out. Uh, like for instance, we've we've spoken to staff at different places or people that worked at these places that had to sign them. A lot of a lot of times it could be a cleaner or a driver or a bodyguard. They've all seen things, and they got to continue to work in the industry. And they, you know, once you you cross that line of going over the non-disclosure, no one else is going to hire you. So that so they haven't come out. We know that there are other victims out there who have signed things, and that's why we've been sitting on this because, you know, it's just a matter of time. It could be six months or six years or ten years from now, but somebody's going to come out with some major settlements. That are all, it's going to validate everything we've been saying. I mean, we've been validated over the last several weeks. You know, Anthony Edwards coming out on Friday was a big validation for us. Um, but this, we've, we've got these understandings of, of, of settlements that we feel that we're very confident are out there that will come forward. And, and we've even had people reach out to us who, who, Who've signed these settlements? Who are are looking into talking to lawyers and are looking for help and maybe coming out with them? But that's that's another thing that we have to talk about here is that these guys are so smart that they know who to pick. It's all in their grooming. So these people have been mentally abused. They've been physically abused. Their careers have been controlled. A lot of times they're put on drugs um, and they get addicted to drugs. And they're so afraid that they, you know, you or I might say, hey, it's easy. Just call a lawyer, go down to the police station and let the, and come out with it. But they can't. They're, they're, they're physically stuck and, and we can't, it's not our right to out these people, 
we can only steer them in the direction of going to a lawyer or going to the police and really taking that. And that's what this film is about. You know, our motto is be courageous, report it, life gets better. And that's why, like, Terry Crews, I think, today coming out and talking about him being sexually assaulted was great because it really demonstrated some leadership. And there's some really big stars out there on the male side of things. Like, for instance... Toby Maguire and Leonard DiCaprio, some of the biggest stars. I mean, Leonard DiCaprio probably is the biggest star in the industry today. I'm not saying he was ever sexually molested. I have no idea if he was. But I do know for a short period of time, he had a publicist named Bob Villard, who is a convicted pedophile, who's been known to be operating as a pedophile in the, in the industry by LAPD since the 80s. I think he's gone to jail once or twice. The last time he was in was 2005. So he, there's a picture of, of Toby Maguire and Leonard DiCaprio. They look about 11 or 12 in our film that, that I believe was taken by Bob Villard when he was their publicist. So they've been around this guy. There, we know other famous actors who, who have, who have been managed by some of these pedophiles and I don't want to out who these actors are, but if they weren't molested, they know people who were. And it's just going to take one or two of them to come out and say, hey, my friend was, you know what, this happened to my friend, and and and, and I'm going to speak up for him. And, and in, in the groups that are successful, for every Leonard DiCaprio, there's maybe seven or eight other kids that were coming up with him at the time, and, and let's say, you know, three or four of them might be dead now from drug abuse mm. uh, or suicide. Because that's normally what happens. Uh, you know, a lot of these kids don't make it past their 30s because they just can't deal with it. And also, we think there's an even darker side to this. We think sometimes that there's been there's been murder mm. to silence to silence people in the sense that maybe someone's been given a hot dose of heroin and it looks like a drug overdose because maybe that person was ready to come out and talk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I think that's that's going to have to be something to look look back upon. One, one name to look on is is Brad Renfro. He was the star of Apt Pupil, uh, which Brian Singer directed. And on and on during that film shoot, uh, several several young boys brought claims against Brian Singer that they were forced to be in a shower scene uh, that was inappropriate, and you know no legal findings were found, but. You know, after that film, Brad Renfo's career, he was slated to be the next star, went slowly started to go down, and, and you just have to wonder, did, did anything happen to him on that set that, that, that drove him to this? Because a lot of people like to blame the drug abuse, but the drug abuse comes after the sexual abuse. It's not the drug abuse that's killing these people, it's, it's the sexual abuse. And then they all go to alcohol or drugs. It's, it's normal. So when you see a lot of these child stars from Nickelodeon or Disney shows all of a sudden hit a certain, you know, a couple years later, they just go off. They just go bizarre. They start, you know, shaving their head or running around the street of New York crazy or twittering crazy stuff or their parents have to put them in insane asylum for a while. You got to wonder, is, is that, is that, is that because of sexual abuse? And the more and more you look at it, you say, Possibly, very well, maybe, you wow. know. Okay. And speaking of Twitter, uh, an open secret on Twitter, an open secret folks follow on Twitter, please. We need to get the word out. Um, Matthew, during the break, 
you talked about two two separate things, and I just I, I was well two separate uh, issues. One are the connections; the other was the mafia-like approach, uh, for lack of a better uh, descriptive quality. Can we hit on the latter first? Uh, because we've heard about this. People think that this, many people think, oh, this is just a fairy tale. For example, being uh, brought into a club, so to speak, like the, you know, being a maid, becoming a maid person. A little bit like the mafia, but with a twist. Can you get into that, please? Yes. Uh, what, what we've had people tell us who are sort of on the fringes of these groups, um, and who've been appalled by it and are, and are finally coming forward. They're talking, you know, we put them in touch with reporters right now. Stories are being written. Is that, you know, at some of these parties, it'll be like a normal Hollywood party. There'll be a lot of drugs. There'll be a lot of casual sex. But then there comes a point where they'll go into a room and they'll say, okay, are you going to participate? And basically what they're saying is, are you going to participate in an act of pedophilia? Are you going to participate in raping this young child with us? And then once you do that, you're in, right? So in the mafia, they say, you know, you got to make your bones, you got to kill somebody, whatever, whatever they say in the mob movies, right? You have to kill someone to really become a made man. And I think in this that these people are actively participating together in raping young children together. So by committing that act, nobody is going to rat on each other because, you know, after murder, it, it might even be a worse crime than murder, that that's how they keep you silent because you're just as guilty as they are now. So that's why I think a lot of this is still staying silent because there are people that have done that, that operate in these crews. And what we're trying to say is that this is this is a hierarchy and this is an organized criminal conspiracy. And it starts with, you know, talent scouts and then it works its way up into, you know, casting agents and talent agents and then their managers and then it goes up to directors and producers. And in some instances it's executive producers and even, you know, high high level people at networks and studios. And they sort of pass these kids around, you know, and, and they groom these kids slowly over a period of time and the more willing the kids are, the faster sometimes their careers seem to go. Like, for instance, in in our film, we show how in the first X-Men, directed by Brian Singer, there's a, a small scene for, for the character Pyro, P-Y-R-O, and it's played by a kid named Alex Burton, who was, you know, a teenager at the time. Now, he was at all these parties that's, that we talk about in our film, that, you know, we call them the DEN parties because that stands for the Digital Entertainment Network. And that was like a precursor to Netflix. Um, this is the late 90s, early 2000s. And basically what they were trying to do is, is shoot online television shows. And they raised, you know, $150 million, $200 million. And they employed a lot of people. They were shooting a lot of terrible movies that, you know, the Internet really wasn't built at the time to, to for anyone to see them. But what we're trying to say is we really think that was more of a front for a pedophile ring to actually just attract young boys and to have parties at these mansions with these young boys. And and really the way you bought your way into the club was, you, you know, you invested in this company and then you would get to meet a lot of young boys. 
And uh, what we show in our film is, is one of our young victims, Nick S. He was being severely raped during one of these series that was being shot by the Digital Entertainment Network. And the director of that series was Randall Kleiser. <coughs> Excuse me. And Randall Kleiser is the director of Grease, and he also directed Blue Lagoon and The Last Navigator. So he was a very established, successful director. And in our trailer, we didn't even know Randall Kleiser was in, really in the film or in our trailer. And I think we barely knew who the guy was. Um, but he was in our trailer. So when he saw the trailer, he had this big lawyer named Michael Donaldson in LA call us up and threaten us and tell us that we had to take our trailer down immediately, which had already been disseminated around the world, that we had to edit out his client, Randall Kleiser, who was in it for like two seconds, because somehow we were associating his client, Randall Kleiser, with pedophiles. Meanwhile, his client, Randall Kleiser, didn't even know that the 14-year-old star of his film was being raped by the producer of the movie. And what's, what's really interesting about Mr. Randall Kleiser is that that, that, film was shot around 1999-2000. Now, in 2005, Mr. Kleiser hired a guy named Brian Peck, the same Brian Peck who was in the X-Men DVD commentary with Brian Singer back in 2000 or 2001, except now Randall Kleiser was uh, was directing an Amanda Bynes movie. I think it's called uh, like Shipwrecked in Love. It's like a 2005 movie starring Amanda Bynes, directed by Randall Kleiser, and in it is Brian Peck, who at this time was a registered sex offender. So now, so you know, maybe Mr. Kleiser can tell us that he didn't know that he was he was working with sex offenders when he was at Den. But he definitely knew, or he should have known, that he had another registered sex offender on his set five years later. Yeah. Uh, but he's, he still had the gall to call us up and tell us to take him out of his film. And he had the gall to hire, you know, the self-righteous, big-time L.A. attorney calling us up, threatening us. And I would like that attorney to maybe look into his own client and look into his own conscience and think about what he did to us trying to threaten us. No, you're absolutely right, Matthew. And... From the notes I have here, um, this DEN, the Digital Entertainment Network, the founder of that network, if I'm reading this right, Mark Collins Rector, is also Correct. a registered sex offender. Right. And he, he founded that network with a guy, you know, a young, a young boy at the time named Chad Shackley. I think Mark was in his late 20s or early 30s. And he started dating Chad at 15. They met in Michigan. And then he was able to talk Chad's parents into letting him move out to Hollywood with him. And they were basically dating or a couple. And then a third, a third young boy slash man was introduced to, to Chad and Mark. And his name is Brock Pierce. He was a star of Disney's or, you know, one of the child stars in the Disney Mighty Duck series. It was, you know, the hockey series. Uh, built around the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. And, and they brought in Brock when he was around 18. And what's interesting is, Brock was introduced to Mark Collins' rector by Brian Singer. So, 
And Brock today is one of the leading advocates for Bitcoin currency and is a multimillionaire, I believe, and on several boards of different Bitcoin organizations, uh, which is dealing in, you know, the digital currency. And, and, you know, we don't know how, we don't know really where Mark Collins Rector is today. He was given permission to, he came back, he fled to Spain. He was jailed in Spain. He came back to America. He was jailed in, 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 in Florida. Did his time. When he got out, he asked the judge if he could go to London for brain surgery and the judge said yes. Then when he was in London, I think he's in like in his forties at this time, he tried to marry an 18 year old boy. Uh, and then the last we were able to do is we were able to track him down to Belgium. And, you know, we've had people tell us that he's getting money through either digital currency or selling, you know, weird online terrorists operate. We don't know how, we don't know how this guy is surviving. Who's giving him money? Is he being paid to be quiet? Um, who's afraid of him coming out with more information? Because if you look at the den investors list, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty much a who's who of Hollywood. Uh, other people that invested den include David Geffen of, uh, you know, DreamWorks fame and probably one of the biggest music managers in the industry. He invested in Den. Uh, another guy named Michael Huffington, you know, the former former husband of uh, Ariana Huffington, invested a lot of money in Den. And, uh, you know, if you look at that SEC filing of who invested in Den, you 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 might you might be very surprised. Probably. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and even Brian Peck, if, if you look at Brian Peck, the Daily Mail did a nice piece on him. There's a connection. I mean, he, he's a constant thread through all of these guys that Brian Peck, as recently as I believe 2013, worked on anger management. Uh, because I believe that he's friends with Charlie Sheen. So I'd like Charlie Sheen Somebody to ask Charlie Sheen if he was the reason why Brian Peck got the job on anger management because at the time Charlie Sheen was the highest paid actor in television, number one, number one. And this guy Brian Peck got a job as a dialogue coach on the show and he claims to be friends with Charlie Sheen as a known registered sex offender. And what's interesting about Charlie Sheen is that Charlie Sheen hires the same attorney as Brian Singer and as Bill Cosby. And that attorney is Marty Singer. So what I'd love people to ask Marty Singer is, hey, Marty, are there settlements out there? Have any of your clients signed any of these settlements? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they haven't. But maybe they have. And maybe that's something the press could find out. Maybe that's something the police could find out. Uh, Didn't, I I don't mean to interrupt, but didn't, wasn't there just some uh, news come out about Charlie Sheen, uh, just like within the last ten days or so? Yeah, Charlie Sheen was accused, and he denied it, and we have no evidence of this. Okay, but he was, but he was accused of raping uh, Corey Haim, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Yep. But, but we do know that one of the one of the rapists of Corey Haim was a man named Martin Weiss. And he's in our film also. Uh, 
he he also raped one of the victims in our film, a young man, young boy named Evan. So there's that connection, right? Uh, that here here's this pedophile who, who's a talent agent in the industry, a, a manager of giant child talent who had raped a young Corey Haim, who knows when, in the 80s or 90s, and now he was, he was continuing to rape boys in the early 2000s, you know, up until, you know, 2009 or whenever he got arrested. So it's all connected. They all know each other. They all operate in the same circles. It's It's like a country club. And there's higher levels. I mean, there's a lot of people with a lot of different power. And, and, and sometimes you have to wonder, how are some of these lower level guys able to afford all these legal bills? Or maybe some of these guys are taking the fall for other people. And this is, this is very big and it's, it's organized and it, and it's scary and it's, it needs to be handled and people need to keep coming forward. And it's gonna have, what's gonna happen is people are gonna come forward with their settlements. And this, the truth can't be contained forever. No, you're absolutely right. We are talking with Matthew Valentinus, the executive producer of the film, An Open Secret. We only have about five minutes left, Matthew. I want to make sure I ask you this. Uh, do you think we will see um, a more overwhelming response to these sexual allegations, people coming out from child stars to men or women, and what, if we see that, what will it do to Hollywood? I think it's going to, uh, yes, I do. I think there's a lot of lawyers that are busy right now, probably bringing cases. Uh, I think, you know, the police are finally actively investigating things. I think just today there was a case brought against Harvey Weinstein that is more of like a class action type of suit. Uh, it's more like an organized white collar crime than it is just a, a you know, a one-on-one -on -one type of crime. So there's going to be a lot of scrutiny and a lot of corporate responsibility. I think people are going to look at Disney and they're going to say, what did you know about Merrimax when you bought Merrimax? I think a, a lot of different boards are going to start to be held accountable. Uh, that's where, that's where this is going to get really scary. I think, like for instance, is Fox Films going to continue to have Brian Singer as their director, even if Brian Singer has never done anything in his life? Do they still want to be associated with a guy who, who, who's known to hang out with so many pedophiles, right? I mean, how, how is that for a film? Uh, so, wow. we just think that, you know, time is on our side. The, the longer they try to cover it, they can't cover it up anymore. So it's just a question of when it comes out and how quickly it comes out. And it, and it, it's a question of, Who's going to step up and do the right thing and really take the first hit? It's kind of like, who's going to flip first? Who, who's going to rip off that Band-Aid? And I think the companies that deal with this on just on a major level and, and fire a lot of different people, they're the ones that are going to survive, and the ones that cover this up aren't. And uh, that's, that's, that's a lot of the conversations that are happening, I believe, right now in Hollywood. If I can, if I can ask this. Uh, are you all right, you and your co-executive producer? Uh, are, are you are you two all right? You, you've got to be taking some incoming flack here, um, duck or bleed kind of scenario. Are, are you? Are, uh, you know, I mean, you, you know, there's there's been there's been some trolls, uh, but look, you know, I mean, legally we're we're protected, and that's all I'm really you know concerned about. 
Everything we've done has been cleared by some of the best attorneys in the business. Everything we're putting out there is factual. And we're on the right side of history and we're on the right, I mean, this, sure. this is, we're on the right side of more, uh, so no, I, I wouldn't say we're afraid. I wouldn't even say we're nervous at this point where we're just disappointed and we're, we're looking forward to people coming out and, and, and supporting us. You know? and how can how can people best do that? Obviously, we have a lot of people. Believe it or not, uh, well, our producer of uh, the show is from Hollywood, knows a lot of Hollywood people. We so, but but how can people best support you, uh, your film, um, and your efforts in the larger sense? Well, I think it's like tweet at the and say, hey, put this film on there because if they buy this film, they can get it out there to forty, fifty million people. And all the profits are going to charity. So why not? Right? I mean, Gabe runs a hedge fund. I, I run a small law office. We're just trying to keep this going to hand it off to a company to take it on. Right? But we also want to make sure it gets to the right company that's going to be able to do it right. And we want it to go to a company that, you know, is going to take some social responsibility. And, and, and our job, we're not trying to bring down the industry. We're trying to help out the industry. We're trying to make the industry better. And that's what the industry needs to realize is they got to start taking steps to, to rather than to, to cut the liability and to protect themselves, they have to realize that by facing this problem head on, that's the best way they're going to save this industry. If they want to save the industry, they need to step up and do the right thing. If they want to continue doing their old practices, they're all going to sink. Well, it's great to, it's great to know that there are people out there that are trying to expose the exploitation, the abuse, that is ongoing in Hollywood. And Matthew, we thank you so much for spending the time, taking the time out of your day to spend with us to talk about the film, An Open Secret. And the folks out there, everybody, um, go and check out this film, especially knowing that the proceeds are going to help charity. Uh, why not? If you can, definitely do it. And Matthew, we look forward to talking with you in the future, and we hope somebody picks up this film and produces it, and it becomes an actual uh, kind of like documentary of these times that we live in, where all well, the and, 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 and gentlemen, can I just tell tell people where to find it? If yes, you don't mind? sure, please. Um, you know, we have about thirty thousand followers on our Facebook page right now, so that's probably the best place to go. It's an open secret doc on Facebook. So follow us there on Twitter. Of course, we're at an open secret. And we also have a YouTube channel where we're posting a lot of the news, a lot of clips from the film, you know, our Twitter feed. We're constantly keeping people updated. We're getting a lot of tips. So our YouTube channel is an open secret on YouTube. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook. We, you know, we only have like 3,000 Twitter followers, but the more that the industry sees that people are following us and supporting us and use the hashtag, hashtag and open secret, the more people do that, the more, the better chance we have of proving to the industry that there is a demand and an audience for this. And we think the audience for this is at least 50 million. You have our commitment that we will continue to promote that. We will continue to back you. We'll direct people to the appropriate social networking sites. Uh, sir, you are a, a true patriot and American hero. Thank you so very much for your uh, time tonight. Well, thank you for having me. God bless you, and uh, God protect you as well. Thank you so very much. Thank you, gentlemen. Wow. Folks, you know, for all of you out there, 
uh, all of the people who emailed us saying this doesn't happen or you, you, you're, you're hyping fear, you're promoting fear, you just heard the real deal. We're going to be right back after this network break with a much-needed dose of a spiritual encouragement from Pastor David Langford. Wednesday edition of the Hagman Report. Pastor David Langford is going to be joining us in just a few minutes. Just want to bring you a quick word from one of our sponsors, Greenovative. And Alan Riggs over there says he's getting ready for Black Friday and Cyber Monday and once again is offering a huge holiday super sale for the loyal Hagman audience. Now is a great time to start buying your gifts for spe- uh, the special Christmas gifts and the sales at Greenovative will help you do just that. They are offering Hagman listeners an 18% discount on the entire store with the promo code Hagman. In addition, they are offering even bis- bigger discounts on the Super Twofer deals that are on their website, as well as a 20% discount on the Mission Pack. Mission. They are very popular, so get one for yourself now, and get one for your favorite missionary as well. Go to greenovative.com and check out all their products, and if you have any questions, contact Alan Riggs. You'll be glad you did. Pastor David Langford is our guest. He joins us each and every Wednesday in the third hour. What was that? Oh, yeah. I wanted to give a big thank you to Bill McIntosh of Ocaso Media for bringing on the last guest, Matthew Valentinas, of uh, the executive producer of the film, An Open Secret. Thank you, Bill McIntosh. The voice voice of evangelism and Pastor David Langford is with us. Pastor, it's great to have you back on. Great to be with you guys tonight. Where would you like to start today, Pastor? What's on your mind? Well, um, I'd like to go to Exodus chapter 15 and speak to the listeners tonight. Are are they training or are they complaining? I think that's one of the great problems of Christianity today, instead of being properly trained in the Word of God, in the Spirit of God, we're too busy complaining where God has us in the present, and uh, that will not get you anywhere in the, in the times that we're living in, so we need to be more uh, adhering to the Word of God and seeking God's will for our lives. In Exodus chapter 15, beginning at verse 22 So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statue and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And I just want to encourage people tonight uh, and exhort the people tonight and encourage everyone listening tonight. Are, Are you training or are you complaining? Whether we realize it or not, We're all in a training mode for something bigger than where we are right now. Without a doubt, this time next year, all of our lives will have changed 
Some of our lives will have changed drastically, some will have changed moderately, and some will have changed very little. But there will be a change because you don't stay where you are in Christ. You know, Paul said in Philippians 3.13, he said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul said, you know, I've not apprehended everything. I've not conquered everything. I'm always seeking to grow. I'm seeking to improve my life. But he said, there's one thing I do consistently, and that is I forget the things which are in my past. You know, too many people go through life looking in the rearview mirror, and you cannot change anything about your past. As a matter of fact, it is in our past that God has tried to develop us. He has tried to mature us. He has tried to grow us, but we didn't take advantage of that opportunity, so you might say somehow we failed and not passing to the next grade or to the next level. And this was the constant anomaly in the nation of Israel. They were people, the Bible said, that were always murmuring. They were always complaining. It's, it's just like life today. Uh, when most people are in training, they're often complaining while they're going through that training course. The greatest reason for complaining is we don't like where we are, and we think we already know more than the person who's trying to teach us. There is a process in life, and this process is to grow and mature whether we accept it willingly or not. We send our children to school for training. We send our children to college for higher education. And oftentimes as adults, we, we have to go back to school for training relative to our job or our business or changing a computer program or whatever. Now, as I get older, I must admit, I don't care about learning new things in the world. I'm always digging into scriptures. That's my life. I enjoy it. I spend hours upon hours in the Word of God. But when it comes to operating a cell phone, I know very little about doing those things. I can't cut and paste on a computer. There's so many things. I cannot do, but I want to apply this to our spiritual walk with God. See, as I said, sometimes we have to go back to school. We have to learn something. Our lives must evolve around God and His Word. That's why we're told uh, uh, to, for a child in Proverbs 22, 6, He said, train up a child, and the way he should go when he's old, he will not depart from it. A child only has one youth. Every one of us have had our time of youth. During that time of youth, especially as young children, it's the power's responsibility. It's up to their stewardship to deposit into a child the right things. Now, I, like many teenagers, young people, went astray, went wayward. But there was something deposited in me that when I became older, I came back to my roots. I came back to what had been deposited in me. Because somebody took the, the interest, the care, the concern to deposit within my life spiritual things. The carnal things are just that. They're temporal. They're carnal. They don't last indefinitely. But our, our soul, our spirit is an eternal being. We are an eternal being. We are an eternal creature. And it's important that 
as, as parents, we take the time to put the right things into our children. Judges 2 and verse 10 says, And there rose another generation that knew not the Lord. My concern right now is that we are not teaching young people the true principles, the true faith, the fundamentals of Christianity. They're not getting those things from the, from the church and the Christian media today. It's hyperbole. It's, it's junk. It's rhetorical jargon. It doesn't help them when they're facing adversity. Every one of us spiritually are in a training program right now. It is important that we get the correct and right training in our lives. What does training do? Training makes us better. When you it don't understand us, it's like something. Practice. Exactly. You're taking the words right out of my mouth, Joe. You have to practice. You, 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 you have to keep doing this. And so you get that, whatever that it might be. But I'm going to apply this spiritually. You get keener in the spirit. You become endowed with greater wisdom and knowledge and understanding how to deal with the things that come into our lives because we're living in a very disturbing time. We're living in a very uncertain time. I mean, our nation, we, we, we push down one peg and five more pop up. I mean, uh, you, you look at the, the debacle with Judge Moore. Uh, and, and hey, l- let me just say tonight, all of us have heinous things in our past. Uh, and, and maybe he did do those things. But I believe in redemption. I believe in forgiveness. I believe in a God of second chances. What, what amazes me, and I'm going to get back on my subject, is the Randy, raunchy, rancid filth that Bill Clinton did as president and anyone, anyone hardly opened their mouths. And, and, and I watched the, the, the double standard, and, and it's, it's really unbelievable, but this is where we've come to. That's why we need spiritual training that we can rightly divide, we can rightly discern what's taking place in our midst. Training is important. I'm going to tell you why. I want to go to Genesis chapter 14. I want to read about a story here about Abraham and his nephew Lot and what had happened, and how Abraham was able to deliver Lot. The Bible tells us plainly here in Genesis chapter 14, beginning at verse 8, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same in Zor. And they joined a battle with them in the vale of Siddim. When Kedor Laomer the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Ampriel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Eleazar, four kings with five. And the vale of Sidon was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son. That was uh, Haran. That was Abram's brother, Abraham's brother, Haran. They were born from a man named Terah. That was their father, their dad. So Abram's brother's son, which was Lot, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ishcol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, 
he armed his trained servants born in his own house 318 and pursued them unto Dan. Notice what he says. He armed his trained servants. They had been armed so they could go out and they could do battle. They were not just any servants. They were trained servants. In the Hebrew, it means they had been initiated, they had been disciplined, they had become dedicated, and they were constantly practicing the, the, the act of war. They were prepared. Now, you know, a lot of times when we read the Scriptures, we miss so many of the deep things of God, but Abraham could not have gone and done what he did had he not uh, trained these men and armed these men for battle. He didn't just take any group of men. He took those that were armed and those whom he had trained. I don't know who did the training, but you can rest assuredly, uh, from the beginning of time, there's been a hierarchical structure and leadership in all tribes and nations and countries. And so this is just something that's passed on for self-preservation. Sometimes God sequesters us. Why? He sequesters us for the purpose of training us. And when we get in that place of being sequestered, what do we often do? We often complain. We often grumble. Moses, his life is very distinct. He spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in, in the wilderness, and then the last 40 in the wilderness leading Israel into the promised land. Now, this was, this was a process that God had brought him through. Sometimes we don't like the process. That's really what bothers us more than anything else in life, is the process that God uses to get us where he wants us to be. Now, we know that Moses was 40 years of age when he entered into Pharaoh's courts. We know that according to Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. And Moses was fourscore years old, and Aaron fourscore and three years old, when they spake unto Pharaoh. So Moses was uh, 80, Aaron was 83. But then we go back to the book of Acts, and Stephen gives us a very accurate account of Moses and his life before he got there to deliver Israel from Egypt's bondage. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, it says, And Moses was learned, or educated, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. Now what I find amazing about that, Moses told God, I have a speech impediment. I, I can't speak well. In other words, he was just trying to use an excuse to get out of what God had called him to do. But Stephen says he was mighty in words. He probably had a vocabulary that was second to none. He was mighty in deeds. I, I would dare say he had a uh, civil engineering understanding how to do things. Verse 23 says, And when he was full 40 years old, so he'd been in, in Egypt for 40 years, now he's 40 years old, and what does he do? It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Now these were the children of Israel that were in Egypt's bondage. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, 
and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst kill the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at the saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord, and a flame of fire in a bush. So he had the first forty years in Egypt. Now he's driven into the wilderness. He spends forty years in the wilderness. What was God doing during that time? It was a training time. It was a time of discipline. He was getting Egypt and the mindset of the world out of him and getting him ready, getting him prepared for this great task to lead this nation of Israel into their promised land. So when the 40 years of the wilderness had expired, God appeared to him in the burning bush. And in that bush, he told him what he had called him to do. And that was ultimately going to be the last 40 years of his life and he died at 120 years of age. So his life was was cut up in three sections of 40. You might say that Moses' life was in perpetual training from the time Miriam, his sister, put him in the bulrushes, and Pharaoh's daughter found him and took him and nurtured him and raised him. You see, all of this was God's divine plan. Now, I don't need to tell you the sovereignty of God is beyond anyone's comprehension. You will never figure out, you will never understand how God is going to do something. We're all guilty of, of trying to figure out how God is going to use us, where God will plant us, how God will use us, who who he will bring into our lives, or who he will take out of our lives. And let me say this tonight. This is important. Every time God gets ready to bless you, he will bring a new person into your life. Now, why does God do that? Because that person, like the butler, was able to open a door for Joseph and get him into Pharaoh's courts. This is why you don't lessen, you do not mitigate those who God initially brings into your life. They may be, they, sometimes God brings people into our life for a reason. Sometimes he brings people into our lives for a a season, and sometimes he brings people into our lives for a lifetime. And it's up to you as a Christian to discern, is this person in my life for just a reason, which is a parenthetical time? Is it for just a season? In other words, a year, two years, three years, and then that comes and goes? Or is it a person for a lifetime? I'm always amazed at the sovereignty of God, how he will network people in our lives. Steve Quill has a, has a very renowned and profound statement that God told him, said, Steve, I will always choose for you better friends than you would ever choose for yourself. You know, Steve and I live over 2,000 miles apart, but Steve is my best friend. Why would God do something like that? I, I don't know, but I do know that Steve has been very instrumental and opening doors for the voice of evangelism. God has used him. Doug, he was the means of me getting in contact with you guys. That's right. Yep. You know, we 
we don't always understand at the time what God's doing. But see, our problem is we can't see the whole picture. We, we just see where we are right now. And, you know, sad to say, we're either happy or we're sad. We, we just can't be uh, content. That, 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 uh, that, that is, <laughs> that is the, the, the place of, 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 of hardest to find in life is, is the place of contentment. You know, uh, Philippians 4, 10, not that I speak in respect of once what I've learned and what sort of state I have, therewith to be content. You know, Paul said, I don't care where I find myself, I'm going to be content. Um, contentment cannot be bought. It cannot be purchased. It is a state and a place of true spirituality in Christ. And as I said, you, you can't buy it. Um, when, when God had driven Moses out of Egypt into the wilderness in Gen, uh, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, And Moses was content to dwell with the man, Jethro, that was his father-in-law, and Jethro gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter. Now when it says, and Moses was content, that is, that is a very unique word in the, in the Hebrew. It means making up one's mind to commence a given activity. In other words, he committed to do what God had ordained in his life from the time he was born. If you'll go back, uh, Jehokabed was his mother, and his mother and Aram, his dad, they saw he was a proper child. What that means, they recognized the hand of God was on him. The mother and the father were able to recognize that there was something distinctly different about Moses. He was unique. He was chosen from his mother's womb to do this great work. Now, all of us have been chosen. If you're a Christian and you're separated under Christ, you have a mission to accomplish for God. Everyone's mission, everyone's call is different. No, no two people are alike when it comes to the things of God. God uses every one of us in a, in a very different way. I think my brother was on with you guys a few weeks ago. We're, we're, we're yeah. opposite a, a lot in the way we minister. But yet we're still brothers. We, we, we have the same, same parents. But the calling... The anointing, whatever God does, is unique. It's not so much that we are unique. It's what's in us. It's God's touch on us. Every one of us are unique in our way. And, and that's what makes the, the work in the kingdom of God so beautiful. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians two twenty five through 27, God will take foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to destroy the things that are mighty that no flesh can glory in his presence. What is God saying there? He's saying, I'm going to get all the glory. I'm going to use you. I'm going to envelop you into the process of what I'm doing. And, and you know what is so tragic? Every one of us, at some time or another, have failed God, yet God did not abandon us. God did not cast us off to the side. I was reading today in Second Samuel chapter 7, and I thought about Roy, uh, Judge Moore. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. You think he was fit to be a king? In the eyes of men, they would say absolutely not. 
But if you go back and read Second Samuel chapter 7, God made a divine covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, as he did with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And he said, I'm going to establish the throne of the house of David, and Jesus Christ will come through your seed. And I know we have a lot of people that are still bashing Israel, and I'm going to address that here in a few weeks. I'm working on some things right now. I want you to understand the significance to Israel and Christianity. People say, oh, they have nothing to do. The church has replaced Israel. That's where you don't know the scriptures. The church never did replace Israel. God made a covenant with a man called Abraham. And so Israel is a nation. And this covenant that God made with him was an eternal covenant, both with Abraham and with David. And God is not a man that he should lie. So it's men that break covenants. God never has broken covenant. It is men that break covenant. One of the things that makes people mad about Judaism, and salvation is of the Jews. Jesus said in John four twenty two, salvation is of the Jews. There's not one Gentile that ever gave us one book in the Bible. That, that, that really disturbs people. There's not one Gentile that wrote one passage of Scripture, yet we say, oh, I believe the Word of God. I preach the Word of God. I embrace the Word of God. But I hate the Jews. Well, you're preaching Judaism, and you don't even know it. Because every book in the Bible, there's, a, there's only one sliver of question, and that was Luke the physician. Was he a Gentile? And there's just absolutely nothing anywhere in the Scriptures to authenticate that Luke was ever a Gentile. So we, we have these people who are anti-Semitic, lambasting, castigating Israel to no end. And you look at the New Jerusalem even, you're going to have the 12 tribes of Israel written on the foundations and the 12 apostles' names written on the gates. I mean, blessed and holy is he that gets to go into that city where the, where, where, where the light is eternal. And I look at all of these things going on, and see, people today, regretfully, instead of getting their understanding and their, as Popeye would say, Popeye, their education, they're getting it from cynics. They're getting it from those who don't understand the Scriptures. They're getting it from people who have, have already a biased opinion because they haven't embraced the totality of God's Word. And, and, and all this began when God took this man called Abram and made covenant with him and brought him out. That, that's where the, the Jewish nation began. If you're not born a Jew, you're a Gentile. There's only two types of people in the earth, Jews or Gentiles. But see, God's grace and God's love and God's mercy brought the Gentiles in. And all throughout the Old Testament, God was constantly weaving a Gentile into the lineage so the Gentiles could be saved and be a partaker of the Abrahamic covenant. Rahab the harlot was a whore. But God brought her in. She married a man named Salmon. And Salmon and her uh, uh, birthed uh, Obed, and Obed birthed uh, Boaz, excuse me, uh, they birthed Boaz, and then Boaz uh, begat Obed, and then Obed begat David, the son of David. And, and so God was weaving a Gentile in so that we as believers could have a part in what God was doing so that we could be saved. We, we could know about the blessing of God. So we see, we see that Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness in another state and place of training. 
And then, of course, God appeared to him, and he spent the remainder of the 40 years getting Israel from the wilderness to the promised land, but only Joshua and Caleb were able to enter into the promised land because the other people were complainers and grumblers and backbiters and criticizers, criticizing. They, they criticized everything that was said, everything that was done. The Bible says to us in uh, Hebrews 3.12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And then he says in Hebrews 3.17, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them who had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? I want to tell you something. I don't want to die. I don't want to be left in the wilderness. I, I want God to, to get me out. Don't leave me there. But see, murmuring, complaining, grumbling, it, it, it lessens God's willingness to get us where we need to go because we're not ever, you know, we're getting ready to come into Thanksgiving. And so many people are so unthankful today. I've never seen such a time of unthankfulness. There's just no gratitude for anything. You, you, you do all you can do, and people still will bicker and grumble and complain and, and don't have any any praise, any any accolades from their mouths to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's already done so much for us. So we see that Moses spent his first 40 years in Egypt, the middle 40, until uh, he, he became 80 in the wilderness, and then from the 80 to 120, till he got Israel to the promised land. But he couldn't go in, neither could they go in, but Joshua and Caleb, because the Bible said they were of another spirit. Say, what does that mean? They, they had the spirit of Jehovah. They had the spirit of righteousness, and they didn't complain. And when they went and spied on the Canaanites, they said, we are more able to take the, the city. And the other spies said, nope, we can't do it. We're like grasshoppers. Those were giants in the land. But Joshua and Caleb knew they recognized all the great things that God had did. And see, again, it was a time of training. And so when they got into the promised land, they got to go in because they had a, a different attitude. They weren't complaining. They had been training, and they embraced that training. They embraced that time of their life. So when they went in there, they were able to conquer and to succeed. Then you go into the book of Joshua, and you see how God used Joshua. And he said to Joshua, as I was with Moses so will I also be with you. God is faithful to help us if we remain faithful. Now, let's look at another person in the Bible, Joseph. Joseph. Here's a, here's a young man that went through a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of training before God got him to where he wanted to, to have him. It was God's will for Joseph to go down to Egypt and become the second and ruler of all Egypt, so that Pharaoh and Egypt would house, clothe, and feed a nation until they grew to be a, a mighty nation. Now, the Bible says in Genesis 37 and verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. So it was 17 years of age when Joseph was sold into slavery. You go on and you read the story, how they, 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 they did Joseph terribly, threw him in the pit, did all these evil things to him, trying to rid him 
of their lives. They, they were trying to destroy him. They, I mean, they utterly were trying to kill him, and they would have if God hadn't divinely intervened and put it into their hearts to sell him into slavery. That was their goal, was to kill him. So we see he was 17 years old when this process started. Then we go to uh, Genesis 41 and verse 46. And Joseph was 30 years Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. This is when God uh, takes Pharaoh and troubles his mind with these harsh dreams of 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 a uh, a famine and of plenty. The, the the plenty was first, and then the famine, and so this was the butler. Remember that had uh, kept the king's cup, Pharaoh's cup, and he had forgotten about Joseph when he Joseph in his dream. Joseph said, "You're going to go back to the palace, and you're going to be restored to your rightful place." He told the beggar, "In three days, you're going to be beheaded, and you're going to die." But Joseph had already told the, the butler, he said, when you get back to Pharaoh's courts, he said, remember me. Don't forget me. See, God brought this butler into Joseph's life, who in the end would become a blessing to Joseph. That's why we can't lessen anyone that God may bring into our life. So when the butler gets back to Pharaoh's courts, he totally forgets Joseph. But God begins to trouble Pharaoh with these dreams. The, 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 the fat cows and the skinny cows eat them up. The fat ears of corn and then the skinny ears of corn eat the fat ears of corn up. And he's having these dreams. And then the butler says, oh, I remember my fault this day. There's a man in prison that can interpret dreams. And, of course, Pharaoh said, go get him. And so there was a 13-year period that Joseph went through of pain, suffering. It was a time of patience. It was a time of training, and this is one great thing I've noticed about Joseph. You cannot find anywhere that Joseph ever grumbled or bickered or complained. Wherever he found himself, he was faithful. You know, I know all of us want to be lifted up. We want to be put into a better position, a better place, uh, a place of uh, being promoted, whatever the case might be. But there's a reason why God has all of us where he has us right now. Are you gleaning from it? Are you learning from it? Or are you being bitter and resentful and looking at others say, I ought to have that job. I ought to be the one doing that. that. That's one of the most common thoughts in people's lives. They think they should be in that particular place. Friend, if that's where God wanted you, you'd be there. God's got you where he wants you to be. We're to serve God with clean hands and a pure heart and accept. Now, we're to pray God's will. You know, when Jesus was in the perfected will of the Father, where was he? He was on the cross, suffering untold suffering. But he, does, he doesn't complain. Neither does Joseph complain. He endures that suffering. He endures that hardship. And then, of course, he explains the dreams to Pharaoh, tells him exactly what they mean, and then he says to Pharaoh, you ought to get a man that can execute this 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 plan of hoarding food, 20% of the food, for the seven years of plenty, so that when the seven years of famine come, you'll have plenty in store to get through the famine. And, of course, Pharaoh says, I've, I've not seen a man in all of Egypt with such wisdom. You're the man. You know, I, I must admit, I'd have probably said, I can get this done for you. You want me to do this? But Joseph didn't say that. 
he, he, he said, just let, you know, you, you, you select the man to do this. And, of course, Pharaoh said, you know, you're the man. You know, I've, I've not seen this kind of wisdom in all of Egypt. Well, that was what I call God's favor. This is why the Lord told me years ago, he said, pray, I give you favor with strangers. Pray, I give you favor with strangers. And then I remember, I know exactly where I was when I was praying. And, and I can be stupid at times. And I said, why do I want to pray for that? That's what I said in prayer. And the Lord said, because the pool of people that you don't know far exceeds the pool of people that you do know. Let's just say I knew 10,000 people. Well, there's about 7 billion on the planet. So, you see, God thinks so much bigger than we ever thought about thinking. He can see so much further than what we can see. And so when he tells you to do something, you do it. Mary told the disciples, whatever he commands you to do, do it. When he told them to go get the pots, the, 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 the governor had run out of wine at the, the wedding feast in Cana. And so Mary said, whatever he tells you to do, you go and do it. And they went and got the pots and filled them with water. Of course, he turned the water into wine. Whatever God tells you to do, do it. Now, one of the problems is people will say, well, is that God or is that the devil? The devil will never tell you to do anything good. Never. He will always tell you to hurt somebody, slander somebody, criticize somebody, uh, lie on somebody, cheat somebody. He'll never tell you to do good. That's not his nature. He kills, he steals, he destroys. So when, when, when you feel impressed in your spirit to do something, do what the Spirit of God leads you to do. It may, you may see results immediately. You may see results six months down the road. You may see results five years down the road. But Paul said in Hebrews 6 and 10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered, and ye do minister to the saints. God never forgets what we do in his name. Never. God, God doesn't have to scratch his head and say, I wonder what they did two years ago. God knows. He keeps a record of all of that. And uh, that's why he rewards. That's why he, he blesses. As a matter of fact, the king, uh, during the days of Esther and Mordecai, the king went and got the ledgers and said, hey, read me about some people who have done some things in the city. This is over in Persia. And uh, uh, the, the, the scribe was reading and told him about Mordecai, who actually Mordecai helped save the king's life. And so he exalted Mordecai, and uh, Haman was the one that got hung, and not Mordecai and the Jews. So doing the right thing when the Spirit compels you, do it. If you don't see anything, any results from it, it doesn't matter. That's what, that's what righteousness is. It's always doing the right thing. You see, our lives are, needless to say, complicated. And, and when you look at the Bible... And you look at these great patriarchs, ask yourself the question, could I have been a Moses? Could I have been a Daniel? Could I have been a Joseph? You know, we, we, get, we have the advantage of reading their beginning and their trials and their pains and their suffering. We see their demise and their death and their burial. We don't get to see all of that in our lives. We, we didn't see our beginning and we'll, we'll be there at our ending, but we don't know how it will end. None of, us, none of us knows that. But my point is, if you were to be 
a Joseph or to be a Daniel or to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they said, we're not going to bow down to the music and, and serve that, that, that idol. And where were they cast? Into the fiery furnace. Why? Because they wouldn't bow. They wouldn't bend. Could you be a Shadrach, a Meshach, or an Abednego? Could, could you do that? So we have to say, where am I in my relationship, in my walk with God? There's some things I want to point out. There's always darkness before there's light. You, you go back to the beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. You may feel like you're in a, in a place of darkness right now. You just can't see clearly. That's, that's, that's normal. There's always darkness before there's light. Once the light comes, man, it makes you happy, because now you can see. You know, sometimes our lives are shrouded. Sometimes our lives are an enigma. They're, they're hard to be understood because God is doing something. And God won't always tell you everything because he knows if he told you everything, you'd start complaining. All God showed Joseph was those sheaves falling down and paying obeisance. That's all they did. That's all that dream showed him. It didn't show him in the pit. It did not show him being sold into slavery. It did not show him being tried to being seduced by Potiphar's wife and then put in prison. God didn't show him all of that. Because as a human being, our natural response would be, I can't do that. I can't do that. So God veils sometimes in a very mild and minuscule way. He veils, he covers his will sometimes to a degree, because if he showed you everything, you'd say, I can't do it. I lose heart, I quit, I give up. So God lets us see a little bit, and that's the impetus to get us started, to get us going, you know? And uh, that's that's why I said before there's light, there's always darkness. There's always a wilderness before there's the Canaan land, before there's the promised land. There's, there's always that wilderness time. None of us enjoys the wilderness. But that's why that, that scripture was important there in Exodus chapter 2 concerning Moses in verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he, Jethro, gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter. He, 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 he was a proper child. He was ordained for this purpose, and he was coming to that place of maturing. But that was just to mature at that level to keep, to keep him where he needed to be kept, but also then to bring him to the next level of entering into Pharaoh's courts, because he knew he was a wanted man. Why? Because he had killed an Egyptian. And he knew the devil was hounding him, saying, you go back down to Egypt, your posters in every post office, they're going to kill you when they get you because you have murdered one of the Egyptian soldiers that was beating one of the Israelite slaves. See, that's, that's the intimidation factor of the devil that tries to scare us to say, well, I, I can't do that now. You know, I, I did this in my past. There again talking about Judge Moore, here's Moses who killed a man, see? And, and the devil would try to intimidate because of a, of a past circumstance or a past situation. But the devil will try to use that to say, you can't go and do that for God. Look what you've done. But we have to forgive ourselves. We have to let go of the past. 
and believe God and trust God for the future. So if God wills to put us into a place of a wilderness state, so be it. It is a training ground. And in there, as I said, we are initiated, we're disciplined, we're dedicated, and this all comes to pass through practice. Next, there's there's humility before exaltation. Everyone enjoys being exalted, or for a better uh, phrase would be uh, the limelight. You know, everybody would like to have a measure of the limelight. Before you ever get into the limelight, you must first become a humble person. See, Luke fourteen eleven says, For whosoever exalted himself shall be abased. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I want you to notice that verse very closely. For whosoever exalted himself. Self-exaltation is just that. It is self-aggrandizement. But self-abasement, self-humility, God says, then I will turn around and I will exalt you. You exalt yourself, I'll bring you down. You bring yourself down of your own will and volition, I'll exalt you and lift you up. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Every one of these men that I'm sharing tonight went through a place of humility, a place of brokenness, a place of testing, a place of being tried. Here's, here, here's, here's, here's the, here's the, the $64,000 question. Will you be faithful in the wilderness? Or will you quit and say, this is not worth it? Because these men remained faithful in their darkness, in their wilderness, and they were self-humbled. God ultimately exalted them and brought them to another place. And, you know, that was the problem with Korah. He was attacking Moses and Aaron and said, oh, you're not the only ones that God speaks to. He speaks to all of us. And, of course, you know the story how God opened up the earth. Uh, Korah and his crowd, 3,000 souls, went straight to hell. See, they exalted themselves, and God brought them down. Peter said, if you'll humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, this is, this is something you have to do yourself. God's not going to beat you into submission. God's not going to beat you into subjection. You come there because you want to be in subjection. You want to be. I've often said this. This is why this verse is so important. First Peter 5 and 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. If I can just be under the hand of God, that's enough for me. That's more than enough for me. Think about that. If I'm under God's hand, that means I am protected. That means that the sun cannot smite me by the day, nor the moon by night. If I'm just under his hand. Now, if he wants to exalt me and put me on top of his hand and lift me up, oh, that's, that's just icing on the cake. That's just even a greater blessing. But my point is, it takes humility. God resists the proud. James 4, 6 says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know why all of these men were able to endure this? They were humble. God gave them grace. Did you know that Noah found grace in the eyes of God? That's, that's the first time we have a record of grace 
being given to a, a man, Noah, found grace in the eyes of God in Genesis chapter 6. Grace. All, God was already displaying grace and favor. And God does that to this day. But we have to humble ourselves. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. If we'll humble ourselves, God says, I want to I I exalt you and lift you up. Next, there's always suffering before there's glory. You know, suffering is, 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 is the hard place to be in. Suffering. You know, if we ask the question, why am I suffering? Why am I going through this place? Why has God let me be in this pit? Why has God put me in prison? Why, why have all these things happened to me? Because before there's ever a, a, the, the reward of glory, there's the suffering. Romans eight eighteen, Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. So if you measure the glory in one hand and the suffering in the other hand, they're not worthy to be compared. First Peter 4.12, Peter said, Beloved, think it not strange or foreign, though some strange thing has happened unto you, but rejoice, for inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. When, when this fiery trial, this suffering comes, there, that, that tells you right now, there's going to be a day of reward. God is just, he is righteous, and there's a day of blessing that's coming. And, and we have to believe that when we're in that place. There's going to be tribulation before there's patience. Paul said in Romans 5 and 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. That speaks right to this old boy right here. Tribulations bring patience. Everyone tonight that is struggling with that fruit of the spirit of patience and long-suffering, the very thing that brings that is tribulations, suffering, pain. What does it do? It breaks you down and causes you to say, you know what? I've got to trust God in this. I, I, I just can't do this. And I know in my heart tonight, I'm speaking to, to many, many of you listening tonight, right now, you are in a place of tribulation. I'm going to tell you why you're there. Because you're not patient. You just won't wait on God, and you keep getting yourself into one trouble after another trouble. And this is, this is, this is your life. This is your life. And, and a lot of it is of our own doing. That's why it's so important to read that verse tonight before you go to bed, Exodus 2.21, that Moses was content. If you can't be content, you're not going to get anywhere. If you're always looking in the greener pasture or looking for a greener pasture, you're always looking for promotion, you're always looking for these higher levels, let God take you there. When God takes you there, yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, there's going to be suffering. Yes, there's going to be training. But that's just part of it. And last but not least, there's always travail before there's birth. I, I believe tonight, some of you, you're pregnant with something. I'm not talking about a baby. God has put something in you that's going to be birthed somewhere down the road. God, God puts that in all of us so that we'll begin to nurture our lives in the Word. Just like a, a, a newborn child needs sustenance, which it gets from the mother, uh, during the, the process of the child growing. We get our sustenance from the Word of God. 
And that's what keeps us and preserves us till this thing is able to be birthed. Jesus said in uh, John sixteen twenty one, a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. So before there's the birthing of this new place, this new posture that God's going to put you in, there's going to be travail. That's just the natural process. You see, before anyone reaches their full potential, they must go through some difficulties. That's just the process. You know, when you start to build a house, there's nothing beautiful about footings. I mean, there's just nothing about digging ditches and pouring concrete in there and and having footings. But that's the foundation. If that's not right, the rest of the house will not be right. That's why you've got to have a sure foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And God wants to bless us. He wants to take us to a higher level that we presently are. But are we willing to go through the training, or are we going to keep living a life of complaining? And I'm, I'm preaching to myself, folks. I'm, I'm a human being. I get aggravated at times. I try not to let it come out. I try not to display it in any way. But, but there are times Satan knows how to work on all of us and cause frustration, just, just pure frustration. And, and, and that's what he wants. That's why Paul in Galatians 2.21, he said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Satan is the greatest provocateur that's ever been. While God's got you in training, to elevate you down the road, the devil is there trying to provoke you to get bitter and angry against God and start complaining, saying, it's not worth it. But I've always found, when you wait on the Lord, God will give you something bigger, God will give you something better. That's why Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four thirteen, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. We, there's some things we just have to endure, and, and all of us, our nature is, I don't want to have to endure that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to endure that. So they walk away, and they go their own way, and they miss out on the, the vastness of God's blessings because they just didn't patiently wait upon the Lord. So I want to encourage you tonight. Are you training, or are you complaining about where God has you? If you're a child of God, God has you at a particular place for this time right now, I promise you. Amen. Amen. Hope that spoke to somebody's heart tonight. Well, it, 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 in fact, it did. I, I'm wondering if the NSA gave you my phone calls or something. You know, <laughs> uh, you, you tapping into things. It, it, what a great message! Because I think we can all re- all relate to what you said in uh, your sermon tonight. My goodness, and, and you know, obedience is part of that too. I think I just it, when you were when you were talking, I, I kept thinking about obedience and. Um, well, to obey is better than sacrifice, Samuel yes. said to Saul. If yes. you're not obeying, I don't care how much sacrifice you make. That does, that's not what counts, the obedient factor. Did you, you hit it on the head, right. Doug. you got to obey God. Amen, amen. Uh, Pastor Langford, thank you so very much. And it spoke to me, and I know it spoke to so many people out there uh, who heard it uh, live, and I'm sure those who will hear it on the archive. Man, you hit the nail right on the head, and what what a terrific message that was! Uh, you've taken us to the end of the program, Pastor. Thank you so okay, very much, brother. God bless all right. you all. Everyone have a great week. What's left of it? You Thank too, you. Pastor. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good night. Bye. Good night.
thevoiceofevangelism.com is his website, thevoiceofevangelism.com, and, and what, what a great message. You know, today's program, what an incredible program from Peter Barry Chauka through the, the first hour, the second hour, of course, um, the In Open Secret, talking about the horrific subject that we did, but yet so important to to expose, and then of course, rounding rounding out third base with uh, Pastor David Langford, and uh, are you complaining or are you training? What what a, what a great sermon! What a, what a great message! Um, now, Joe, tomorrow, well, tomorrow, of course, tune in, folks, nine to ten, the Doug Hagman Radio Show, from two to three, Joe and John are on the Hagman Daily Show. And then, of course, tomorrow night, the flagship show, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, five hours of Hagman Report-related radio. And uh, please, I would urge everyone, in summary, to follow Hagman PI, which is my my Twitter feed, follow John's and Joe's, and follow Open Secret on Twitter, follow Peter Barry Chauka on Twitter. The more we do, the more we, in Hagman Report, of course, the more followers, the more people that we uh, speak to or are able to speak to, the greater reach we have, the greater presence, and the greater solidarity, I suppose, that we have. And I think that's important. And, and all social networking feed, let's use the mechanisms that we have to get the word out there. And I think that that's, I don't know, just something told me to, to really mention that because I, I think it's important that the mechanisms be used to their to the greater good, and we can do that. Uh, especially with the second hour guest, the uh, open secret. My goodness, what an important topic. And I want to thank uh, Bill McIntosh from Ocasa Media for suiting us up with that guest. Yeah, and absolutely. Bill McIntosh is a man, right? And hopefully we will hear more from him as the um, allegations coming out of Hollywood continue wow. to increase and as his film continues to move forward and hopefully, as he said, gets picked up for distribution in the theaters or at least on a online streaming streaming platform like Netflix or Amazon. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Congratulations but, to Peter Barry Chaka too. Uh Donald Trump President President Trump retweeting of course the report at Hagman Report. Bar- Peter Barry Chaka authored that. And thank you. Congratulations on on that. Joe, go ahead. All right, that'll do it for us tonight. Until tomorrow, stay safe, God bless and have a great evening.